VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's produced the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, hockey season is behind us, but I want to give a shout-out and a welcome home to Team Outlaws. That's a group of 2008 to 2010 female AAA hockey players. They were down in Boston playing in the Chowder Cup. They're about to return home. Good record in the round robin, 3-1-0. Lost in the semis, oh, pardon me, lost in the playoffs, 2-1. And so didn't end the way they wanted, but a really good showing. So all these AAA female hockey players... Nice trip, good experience of playing the Chowder Cup in Boston. All right, so summer sports are kicking in in full force at this moment in time. You know, enrollment is up in a lot of the sports. The question that I throw out there is, you know, whether it be individual sports or team sports, it is really a fine place to find yourself as a young child. You know, whether it be learning some of the life skills, how to win, how to lose, the camaraderie with being on a team, and or the resilience to be an individual player, like a tennis player, for instance, the barrier, though, for many, is the price of registration. So some sports, of course, cost vastly different than other sports. And we do have a physical tax credit, a physical activity tax credit here, but that's money after the fact. I wonder is there a way to rejig it so that every child who wants to play in summer sports in particular, given the fact we're moving into summer, gets a chance to do it without those financial barriers because those stories are... There are lots of groups out there trying to help on that front. You know, the Breakaway Foundation in hockey or Kids Sport or Canadian Tire. And there's lots of groups out there, but there's still, you know full well, some young people in the province who would love nothing more than to be involved in one sport or another with some of their pals, but the family just don't have the money. So anyway, let's keep going. For motorsports fans, big weekend on tap, the Canadian Grand Prix at the Circuit Gilles-Villeneuve, one of the finest tracks on the F1 circuit. I'll be tuned in for sure. And, of course, the U.S. Open Golf Tournament starts today. It's the second oldest tournament in the world behind the uh, British Open. We've never had Canadian win that tournament, of course, one of the four majors, <laughs> basically because Mike Weir is the only one to win a major as a Canadian player on the men's side. Of course, Brooke Henderson has two on the female side. So go get him at the U.S. Open. All right, so we've been talking about transportation, and there's so many things considering, you know, the different modes of transportation and how we decarbonize and the options that will be presented. So whether it be hydrogen plays a role in fueling automobiles, but the electric vehicle, just a couple of in interesting points. So CNA has now got a course that is not going to be mandatory at this moment in time, but it's to remove some of the myths and give some of the do's and the don'ts, the shoulds and shouldn'ts, regarding if you respond to a collision that involves an electric vehicle. So this makes all, all the sense in the world, right? So whether it be police or the paramedics or the firefighters or, yes, tow truck drivers, everyone involved in these types of collisions, because there would be some obvious worries about potential for high voltage, what happens if an electric vehicle is in the water. So that makes all the sense in the world for CNA to be moving forward with that particular program. You would think that many first responders, if not all, would at some point take this or at least bring what they learn from CNA back to the fire hall, back to the hub where their paramedic, fellow paramedics are, or back to their tow truck company, or whatever the case may be, or back to the, uh, the department for RNC or RCMP. So that's a good one. Notably, it's on this date, 1752, that ben Benjamin Franklin proved that lightning is electricity in his old famous Kite the Key experiment. 
And also, I've been told yesterday this is a terrible idea and a terrible waste of money for Newfoundland Power to be approaching the Public Utilities Board for $1.5 million to run an electric vehicle load management pilot project. Kind of makes sense to me. I mean, you know, far too often what we do is we react after the fact, and of course that comes with the additional cost and it comes with the chaos. So what they're trying to create here is a better understanding of what the uh, grid and capacity on the grid will look like if and when the forecasted growth in the numbers of people with electric vehicles follows course to what drive electric NL things and what that Newfoundland Power agrees with. By 2040, maybe in the neighborhood of 100,000 to 200,000 EVs or hybrids on the road. At this moment in time, only 3,000. So this one, I think, is good for rate payers because... If we don't come up with a strategy to meet what is the anticipated demand, maybe, just maybe, we're going to have to add infrastructure versus people understanding the benefits to them and their pocketbook for charging up their EV in the off-peak demand hours. So, um, you know, inevitably, every dollar spent will indeed be scrutinized. And some people see the level of spending provincially and federally, and so that every time there's a spending announcement or an application for additional monies, it gets the rack up. I totally get it. Because spending, in large part, is pretty much out of control. So, but doesn't this make sense? If we identify the proper path forward versus the possibility to add infrastructure, and I think this is a conversation that has to happen across the country, decarbonizing, whether it be the Liberals or the Conservatives, either the Conservative Party of Canada says that they will do what they think is right on the market pressure front with incentivizing transitions as opposed to implementing a price on pollution the carbon taxes people point to. So what do you make of that? I think that's probably the right play. And of course, someone says I omitted one of the important parts of the July 1st implications, whether it be with the additional carbon tax on the federal scheme, moving from 11 cents per liter to 14 cents, and yes, with whatever the clean fuel regulations impact will be. But of course, it also comes with the carbon tax rebate. I don't know what the federal government calls it exactly, but it's a quarterly credit. So for you folks out there, it's $164 an individual, 82 for a spouse or common law partner, $41 per child under 19, $82 for the first child in a single parent family. So yes, some of the additional burden will be tempered with this rebate check, but get that in there for the obvious reason. On the other side of the transportation issue will of course be the future of the oil and gas industry in the province and in the country. Out of nowhere yesterday, there was a question posed to Energy Minister Andrew Parsons regarding Beta Nord and the possibility for an equity stake therein, maybe as much as 10%. So Beta Nord is not actually a thing at this moment in time. I think we were basically surprised when Equinor and their strange timing to make an announcement at the Energy NL conference that they're going to pause the project. Looking at volatility and construction costs, what have you, telling us the, fo- the number being floated around $16 billion isn't accurate. So still some talk that equity in that project would be something that the province is considering. We actually have an equity stake in three separate oil projects at this moment in time. A 4.9% stake at Hebron, 5% stake at the West White Rose Expansion Project, 8.7% stake in the Hibernia South Expansion Project. So inside of this, remember, we had ample opportunity to digest the Green Report, the Premier's Economic Recovery Report, but no such luck with the Rothschild Report. So the question has been, to sell or not to sell? The province is absolutely in a position where if there's a way to monetize some of these assets, it's certainly worth consideration. You know, we don't even have any firm understanding of whether or not cash on the barrel head today versus the equity stake and the payouts into the future in 10, 20, 30-year blocks. We don't really know how that looks. 
But it'd be interesting if someone could give us something beyond a cocktail napkin examination. So apparently, based on access to information, Rothschild is actually currently actively working on preparing the equity assets for market. It kind of leads you to believe that Rothschild was in line with the Green Report in saying that it's time to divest our equity stake. Now, we don't know if there's an appetite out there in the market for anyone to want to buy it. The minister responsible says there has been no firm decision as to whether or not there's going to be any move on that front. He says, but in terms, if there's a document or has there been a direction as to we need to proceed with that, I can unequivocally say no. But all of these things, you know, these have been on the table for quite some time. We don't have a very good idea as to exactly what the thoughts are inside the cabinet room or on the eighth floor about how to proceed on these fronts, whether it be other items aside, the Green Report and the NLC and Bull Arm and Motor Vehicle and Marble Mountain, whatever you want to consider. But this one's huge because there's got to be a pretty whopping uh, market value for these equity assets. So see if we can get a bit more information. But that Rothschild Report, I don't know how much it bugs you, but it bugs me to no end to know that we paid so much money to a pretty, in some form, bit of a dodgy outfit. But anyway, we don't have much more information to deal with. But that's curious. That guy kind of came out of nowhere. And we'll see if you want to talk about that this morning. All right, let's dig into the mini cabinet shuffle yesterday. A lot to consider here. And, of course, it's all based on the fact that Derek Bragg, former fisheries minister, is dealing with his tongue cancer and his tongue cancer treatment. We wish Mr. Bragg all the very best through the treatment and hopefully his full recovery. But, of course, it's spurred on the cabinet shuffle. Oh, on the cancer front, it's also good to see uh, Labrador MP Yvonne Jones back in the House of Commons after her second go-around with breast cancer. The first time she was a member of the House of Assembly, now as a member of Parliament. She was back in Parliament yesterday in the House, so we hope she's doing well also. Okay, so let's look at the new faces in the new portfolios and some of the key things they're going to have to deal with. You know, it's always been a bit of a turnstile in different ministerial portfolios. Some consistency could obviously help. Now, the senior bureaucrats really hold the wealth of information anyway. So hopefully ministers can get up to speed and attend to the people's business because time is of the essence on many of these important matters. Elvis Lovelace, moving from transportation and infrastructure into the fisheries, forestry, and agriculture portfolio. He's been there before. I would imagine, you know, it's a complicated, I wouldn't want that job, but with a shared responsibility between the province and the federal government regarding the fishery, one of the, th the things we actually have full control over is how to set the price on the species. Look, you all are painfully aware of the snow crab issue. And the Premier has committed to looking at price setting, whether it be abolishing the panel or coming up with a better way, you know, maybe some compromise between the two uh, bids or the two suggestions by the FFAW or the Association of Seafood Producers. I don't know exactly what the total allowable catch percentage that has been landed at this moment, probably in and around 30%. But we've got to do better. When the price setting panel says the 220 is probably not the right price, then we've got to fix this ASAP. You cannot have this extend into next year's snow crab season. And it won't be the only species where there might be a standoff. John Abbott moves off of his old portfolio of children, seniors, and social development into transportation and infrastructure. Of course, with the quote-unquote unprecedented spending on road work this season, early tenders have worked, what have you, but in the infrastructure world, what used to be all the rage and the pushback was extraordinary regarding how we approach infrastructure, notably the public-private partnership. It kind of went by the wayside, and people seemingly didn't care as much as they used to in the past. And we are now using the P3 for just about every key piece of infrastructure. 
from the penitentiary to the mental health and addictions facility to long-term care facilities. Again, we have some understanding of what the short-term relief looks like versus the long-term pain. P3s have generally come with some kicking the can down the road and additional expense to the taxpaying public. But no one seems to want to talk about that anymore. You know, even with replacing St. Clair's, if that ever comes to pass, another issue that kind of came out of nowhere. Okay, what else do we have? There is a new cabinet minister, Paul Pike. He's taken on John Abbott's portfolio. He's also the minister responsible for Newfoundland and Labrador housing. We have a housing crunch in the province. There's a housing crunch in the country. There are so many units that are boarded up. We still need ongoing updates on progress to get whatever is under repair or under renovation. Currently, it doesn't have any tenants. That would certainly ease the pinch for so many people who are struggling to find appropriate housing. And then Minister Haggy, now out of education into municipal affairs. Let's start with education first. So Crystalline Howell moves from municipal affairs into education. It's the third minister of education in the last two years. Some portfolios really do require more consistency and a long time sitting in that role so that you can really wrap your mind around it. Education is complex. So involved in all of that is, you know, the annual review of curriculum, which would not be necessarily the minister's responsibility, but the guidance and the leadership to try to deal with some of the issues that are uh, prevalent in healthcare, but we don't attend the same amount of attention to focus in education. There's a huge staffing problem. We have a shortage of permanent full-time teachers, a really big problem with the shortage of substitute teachers. We're in the final throes of blending the English-speaking school district into the Department of Education. So, again, I know that you can't flip a switch and overnight new ministers understand everything inside the complexities or the nuances of their portfolio, but, again, the kids are going to be back in school in September. And whatever needs to be improved, human resources, curriculum or otherwise, safety or otherwise, then the minister's got a lot on her plate immediately. And speaking of Minister Haggy, now down to municipal affairs. I don't know if that's the appropriate way to put it. He's the minister of municipal affairs. So now the province is kind of shifting the way we characterize what was formerly regionalization. Those R words are just not working. So people talk about relocation or regionalization. And nobody wants to entertain those conversations. But regardless of what people think, at some point we're going to have to figure it out. And again, time is not our friend on this front. So they're moving away from talking about regionalization because the province has pretty much rebuffed it. Now talking about shared services. It was always just a shared services issue. People focused in on the fact, well, my community identity will be lost. As opposed to, what can my community and the communities nearby, what can we do to potentially save ourselves some money, share our services, identify the overlaps or redundancies, because that really should have been the starting point for that conversation in the first place, which should have also included local service districts, of which there are many in the province. So yeah, figuring out a way to share services was really the key and the starting point inside regionalization. But we started at the top versus started at the bottom and tried to take it away in bite-sized morsels, the only way that you can eat an elephant, because it is an elephant-sized policy shift that's common, whether or not we like it, but shared services makes a lot of sense to me. So the minister, he's got a lot on his plate, and he's got to get to it. All right, and on that front, I mentioned housing. The societal and economic positive side from immigration is something that I speak to, which gets me in trouble in some corners, but so be it, because I really believe it to be true. That said, it is probably time to pump the brakes a little bit, nationally and even provincially, it's not to say that we still can't try our best to attract skilled immigrants and healthcare workers from elsewhere around the world and or skilled tradespeople. 
But the population growth, of which it was 2% growth in this province last year, 5,000 additional residents in the city of St. John's, I welcome the immigrants. I know, or I think I know what it means to the societal fabric and the economics of the province. But if we have not put enough time, focus, and money into dealing with the housing issue and the health care issue, we're not doing ourselves any favors necessarily. It feels good for some responsible on that front to say, yeah, we're growing. People are looking to this province to set down roots, to make it their home. Okay. But if we don't concurrently address housing and health care issues, we're not necessarily making it any better. So this is not an anti-immigrant rant of by no means, but we've got to get it right. I mean, it's a big issue. If the federal government is so optimistic on their one and a half million immigrants over the course of three years, where in the same sentence and or policy announcements are we addressing and acknowledging that it comes with some additional pressures, notably the two aforementioned, health care and housing? So if you want to chime in, let's go. All right. Now, <laughs> you know, the stories that get a lot of traction in Ottawa, some are reasonable, some are maybe not so much. And this is about Paul Bernardo. Okay, so there's questions as to whether or not Marco Mendocino, the public, minister, uh, the public safety minister, you know, when he knew and what he thought about it. Now, apparently his staffers were told by Correction Services Canada that this move was being made from maximum to medium security. Generally speaking, I don't think we want ministers to be tipping the scales regarding correctional services and what inmate serves their time in what facility or what institution. But these are really emotional public issues that ministers, and apparently the Prime Minister's office was also briefed on this front, is if they can get out in front of it, explain to Canadians what's happening and why it's happening, it's helpful. Mendocino has had many sidesteps during his term inside the public safety portfolio, so it's just adding up. It's a cumulative problem for uh, Minister Mendocino at this point. But, you know, people are, I guess, tugging heartstrings and making it emotional because it is emotional. Say, so, you know, calling Mr. Bernardo the most prolific and notorious serial killer in the history of the country. And this is not, you know, just for sensationalism, but there's a lot of notables. Elizabeth Wetlaufer, remember her? She was a nurse in long-term care. She killed several patients, uh, at least eight, with injecting them with uh, insulin that caused them th their death. Robert Picton, of course, the pig farmer. Cody Lebikoff, notorious. Add to William Patrick, Gilbert Jordan, Alan Legere. Who, I mean, just think of these names and what they've done. Peter Woodcock, McGee, Twitchell, and of course David Russell Williams. But on the form of political uh, interference or opposition outrage, there was an example back in 2018 where a uh, child killer, Terry Lee McClintock, was convicted of, of raping and killing an eight year old child. She was moved from a prison into a healing lodge. Because of who knows exactly what went on, but the opposition parties took credit for the fact that Ms. McClintock was then moved from the Healing Lodge back into a prison. Now, the move between maximum and medium security is not the same as medium security to a Healing Lodge because it had no firm, secure perimeter. So that's how then-Minister Ralph Goodale talked about it when the decision was made and the directive was offered to uh, Correctional Services for McClintic to be back in a prison and out of a healing lodge. So there are examples. Now, is this the be-all and end-all? No. Do we want politicians to be directly involved in these types of decisions as opposed to independent bureaucrats and organizations like CSC? The answer again, no. But the who knew what when and their ability to s explain to Canadians what's happening is just woefully lacking on so many fronts. 
And there's been a lot of them inside of Marco Mendocino's office. So anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue and coming on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number four. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. This morning. That's kind. Thank you. How about you? Not too bad. Well, frustrated. But uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, Patty, I'm I'm calling uh, about the summer student program. Okay. Uh, And and I'm sure I'm the same as... uh, a lot of other people in this province today trying to figure out what in the name of God's going on with the federal government. That that here we got the summer student program that we all so desperately need to uh, to carry us through the summer and to continue with our programs and things. And not a bloody word from them. You know, I called Seamus O'Regan's office and emailed Seamus O'Regan's office. And for somebody who was formerly in the communications business, man, I don't think they even know how to spell it these days because they won't even respond to you. So I don't know if you or any of your listeners or anybody knows what's going on, what's the status of the summer student program. Are we going to be getting students or no half a student or, uh, you know, frustrated, man, frustrated as heck. Is there uh, reason to so, believe there won't be a summer program? Uh, well, I'm hearing that it's severely cut back or uh, rumors, snippets of information is all we're getting. And nobody seems to be able to tell us anything. Uh, I've heard that uh, somewhere on the West Coast where they were usually having five or six students that they heard they were now getting one and things of this nature. But the frustration with all of this is, is similar to what happens with us with a recreational fishery every year. It's, it's trying to figure out when you're going to announce this. I don't know if this is kind of a game the federal government plays with us these days, but it keeps us waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Or is nobody working in their offices anymore so that nobody can make a decision? But they don't realize the impact this is having and and, and the students themselves who, who depend on the job for the summer. And when they come to us and say, am I going to be working for you again this summer? Hey, man, I don't know. I'm sorry. I can't answer that question. So Now, I'm just trying to recall time frames here, but I thought this had already been announced. Remember all of the shenanigans surrounding the uh, attestation there a few years ago where you had to sign on to align yourself with some liberal government priorities to qualify, which was really unnecessary, and it cost uh, oh, Scott, the member out in Central, um, Custom is role with the uh, the Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans. Anyway, so I thought this was actually already in play, and there's a few key issues here with uh, you have to have organization with 50 employees or less, and it's just a wage subsidy program. But I'm going to have a look, Tom, but I thought I heard this was announced. Yeah, I'd, if you did, and if you could find something, we'll be listening to, uh, to get, because uh, any hope of hearing back from any kind of a politician is just crazy, but it's just that you know, here's, as you know, uh, school is probably over essentially now for all of these students that normally work in these programs or they're in exams and waiting to, to come to work, and, and we can't give them an answer. And nobody, you know, will give us an answer, which is ten times as frustrating. So if you can find anything out or if the VOCM News can announce for us, uh, then we certainly would appreciate it. 
Yeah, I'll see what I can find out. And, of course, inside Minister O'Regan's portfolio, Minister of Labor, the only responsibility inside of Labor he has for federally regulated industries, which is sort of a strange thing to have in place here. If I'm not mistaken, funding for our uh, Canada Summer Jobs Program comes from Employment and Social Development Canada. But I can find that out pretty quickly during one of the upcoming breaks. I'll get confirmation on whether or not it was launched, when the application deadline is, those types of moving parts. Uh, And the Scott I was thinking of was Scott Sims, of course, Scott Sims. Yep. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Uh, yep. I have your email address, Tom. If I can find it here in short order, I'll send along what I can get. I appreciate it, Patty. Appreciate it very much. You're a great service. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure I heard there was an announcement. It didn't come with some of the unnecessary parameters or eligibility issues that it did a few summers ago when you had to sign that form that, you know, whether it be regarding abortion, what have you, which left a lot of churches who would normally in the summer hire some students to do whatever around repairing fences or taking care of the grounds or whatever their role would be. And so rightfully it went away because it really didn't, it wasn't really necessary when we're talking about jobs for youth during the summer. All right, let's go to uh, line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for CBS. He's the opposition critic for education. That's Barry Petten. Barry, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How you doing? I'm good, Patty. Uh, I'm calling in this morning. I just want to do a final, I suppose, final touch up for school year ends on Frank Roberts' uh, situation that has been a fair bit talked about over the last while, but I figured I'd uh, wrap it up today. Uh, Patty, uh, first of all, <coughs> I just come back from walk, sorry. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to pass my congratulations along to uh, Minister uh, Howell, who uh, will be taking on a new portfolio. And I wish Minister Aggie well, of course. We uh, we didn't agree on this one. But that's Sobey's life and that's politics. <laughs> but, Patty, uh, I guess what I'm trying to uh, wrap around to today is uh, the issues are still out there. We still get overcrowding. There's still no cafeteria. And the cafeteria being proposed is uh, <clears throat> it's not up to scratch. It's only going to be a classroom, and you have a student uh, body of 650 people, which is way, when you look at a classroom, you're going to do a rotating uh, uh, lunch breaks, which is not adequate. It's not good for uh, social, socialization with students and what have you. So it's uh, it's various issues. We still got the rodent issue. Now, apparently they've done a deep dive on that, and they've done, I suppose, they've uh, reduced it, but I'm not gone. And you still get a numbers are trending upwards, enrollment, and you get overcrowding. So those issues are still there, and I understand we got a new minister, and she's going to take her time to review the portfolio, and, and rightfully so. But I feel that uh, this issue is not going to go away. Right now it's died down a fair bit because we're coming up to the end of the school year. But I've no doubt it's going to come back again in the fall. And by that time, Minister Al will be well acquainted. And I feel that we need to start planning for a... Uh, a new school. It's going to take several years, of course. So you need immediate repairs done now, and which some has been done. I give them that much, but still lots to be done. And there's still a lot of concern. You get it? I mean, your students and your parents, teachers, and staff that work in these schools, they deserve better. And I've always uh, advocated it's not about me, it's not about, you know, Minister Aggie, it's not about Minister Howell. It's about those people, and we have to speak up for them. And their concerns are real. They come to me, and I know you've heard a lot of, you've seen a lot of pictures. And it's a real, it's a real issue, and it's uh, something that I don't think, you know, former minister, you know, never, in my mind, he never gave it the proper attention. I know I've talked to much, many staff out there and uh, <clears throat> people that work in the system and whatnot, and I feel that even to the district level, it was a dismissiveness, and they thought it was foolishness that every school got rats. 
every school gets issues. And it was kind of really, a, you know, from the get-go, I found out with the response. And, I mean, that's a way of defense. That's a defensive response sometimes, too. And I respect that, and I get that they work in the field. But that's not where I'm too petty. And, again, I mean, i got to speak. i got to advocate for the people I represent, and those people are still coming to me, and they're not going to go away. It's like I say, it's died down now because we're at the end of the school year, and that's what happens. But over the summer, you got a long summer ahead. Great time to go in, and I have that deep dive that has not been done. I mean, these walkthroughs with clipboards and, you know, what you can see on the surface, they're not the proper analysis that I've been calling for. I mean, I think you need to go in and look at, uh, I mean, I know the boys washing floors and talked about that. Issues in the ceilings, there's water leaks not addressed. I mean, these are real issues, and they cause mold. So I guess my, my call is, you know, and my call is just to refresh, to, you know, renew my call. And hopefully, hopefully, someone within the department, people in the department, will, you know, take, you know, take some of this, you know, these pleas, I should say, and do some action over the summer. Does this discussion <laughs> lie with the Ministry of Education, or is it basically inside of John Abbott's new portfolio as the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure? Well, I guess the schools fall under education, so they're the ones got to drive the issue, you know. So infrastructure is there, no doubt, for when you're looking at the actual raw construction or what have you. But the district controls the day-to-day repairs. But you're right, in a sense, but in the infrastructure piece, but not totally, because education got to put forth their priorities. So if education puts forth priorities for Frank Roberts' replacement, well, then John Abbott takes the ball in. But the ball got to be passed to him first, and right now there's nothing to be passed to John Abbott or previous to that, uh, Minister Lovell. So there got to be emotion. there got to be a willingness within the Department of Education, Patty. And I've not seen it. And most of the response I got back was like, <clears throat> I know, something wrong with me, or I was, you know, what <laughs> I was, I was concocting these things. And and you know as well as I know, and everyone out there knows that's that's only a political response. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 my questions are real. Uh, the answers need to be more sincere and more to the point, and I think that's what people look for every day anyway. We don't always get it, but that's what I continue to strive for. Yeah, a school for, uh, built in the 60s, and no question it was not built with the size of the student body in mm-hmm. mind. And no, no cafeteria, can't even put a full classroom t- inside a science lab. So, you know, overcrowding is, is a problem because we talk about class size, but overall inside the uh, bricks and, uh, pardon me, the walls of a school, if it's overcrowded, that comes with an educational implication. In the last budget, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of $130 million for new schools. Some of them have been desperately needed for a long time, certainly in Cartwright. School plan for Camel Terrace, I can see Camel Terrace from here. Uh, the one that kind of came out of nowhere a little bit was down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. But anyway, and the news uh, redevelopment of school in Pillies Island. Uh, okay, so that's that one. Uh, on the education front, so I do think it's worth pointing out that we've had three minutes of education inside of the last two years. With education and all the different nuances and complexities, it does feel like maybe that's a bit too much of an active turnstile. It is for me. Now, I know that people who listen to this show all the time hear me say that we don't give education enough priority because if we're talking about health care, the economy, jobs, the environment, taxes, all the criminal justice all the way down the line, if we get it right in education, we can deal with those other matters. So I have a little bit concern. And this is not a question, Chris. Lynn Howell. It's not questioning the Premier directly, but I think we've got to have a more consistent uh, face at the helm of education personally. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, I agree, Patty. It's uh, been a revolving door, and uh, I might add to that, too, the Deputy Minister was just changed there last month as well, so, uh, you know, you look at senior bureaucrats in their, in their knowledge base, so there's been a lot of, lot of change, and on top of that, you bring the district you know, you're collapsing the district and bringing them into the department. And to what we gather, that's still not fully complete. You know, even though now, you know, the minister passed stuff off to Mr. Hall on occasion. But realistically, we all know that that, that was collapsed and supposed to be no longer. And I think, the, you know, the district will be probably like the equivalent of an ADM, assistant deputy minister. So 
that's still out, um, outstanding. And then you're doing all these changes. So I totally agree. And I've talked to Mr. Langdon on numerous times, and he's he said that he don't feel like education gets the proper attention. And I don't disagree with him either. And we have a lot of issues out there. And if you haven't got a consistent voice for a period of time at, at the helm, and then I mean, you add in the deputy minister as well, it's a lot of turmoil for a very important portfolio. It's one of the most important, uh, you know, our most valuable resources, I, I always say, is our children. Now they're all in our other resources, and we need to pay more attention to it. Uh, last one before I let you go. There's uh, three people vying to be your next permanent leader, Eugene Manning, Lloyd Parrott, and Tony Wakeham. You've endorsed Tony Wakeham. Why? Uh, you know, Patty, uh, equally credit to all three, three, three candidates. I spoke to the Lloyd and Eugene yesterday, and I passed along my best. And I really meant that it was a not easy decision, you know, sometimes when you're doing this and you get relationships from all. But, I mean... You know, Tony, Tony, Tony's portrayed to me, you know, yeah, some people you just want to follow. And I guess Tony gives me that feeling, you know, when I'm, when I'm around him and I've watched him in action and I've got to know him. And it's no discredit to the other two. But just the fact of the matter, I just felt that Tony was, right now, Tony was the right choice and for the right time. And, you know, a lot of times I'm one of the people, I follow my gut. I don't really follow much else. I go, my gut, my gut usually leads me in the right direction. And this one, it was a gut instinct. And I think Tony will do great. And I, you know, I encourage people to go support him. Because I do think we need that stability right now in the coming years, and I think Tony provides it. Did you ever consider not endorsing one candidate or another? Because if and when your candidate does not win the leadership vote, then there might be an initial rift that was created by an endorsement. You know, Patty, that's always a fear. You know, I shouldn't say it's a fear. I don't really look at it as fear. That's always that's always the risk with the leadership, you know. But I've always said, and anyone that knows me will hear me say this repeatedly, I always believe you need to stand for something. And sometimes it may not be, you know, it may not be the best decision out there. I mean, I know last leadership, I was for the chess, Crosby, and I was the only Cox I've ever done so. And I've never done that. i just done that again, follow my gut. I mean, things happen, they happen. Chess done, you know, chess done well, well, considering everything else. And we're still good friends and everything moved on. But you need to, you need to make a stand and I believe I'm, that's just the way I fly and I'm not always following the course of public opinion I usually just try to try to gauge at my own instincts what I think is best for the party at the time and I, and I do it this way but that's, a, that's an inherent risk with endorsing candidates and leadership but I feel that it's a necessary one you need to make that stand Appreciate the time Barry Thank you Okay, Patty. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Uh, Barry Penn is the PC member for CBS. Big thanks to Jolene Grimes in the newsroom. Yes, indeed, the Canada Summer Jobs Program has been announced. The issue here that's having an impact on whether it be the business community or the not-for-profit sector, there's cuts. So there's one uh, group that's no, uh, itemized here in the news story. They were applying for six students, but only re- uh, received approval for three. So yes, the program is out there, but not funded the way it once was. I'll get that information to Tom when I get a chance. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mayor Mike Teller out of New West Valley wants to talk about shared services. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. So good morning to his worship. Mayor Mike Teller out of New West Valley. Mayor Teller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and how are you? Best kind, I think. How about you? Not too bad at all, sir. Certainly better than the weather we've been having, but uh, that's that's a topic that could go on for a very long time. Yeah, it's not um, fit, but that's what it is. Why? And the Avalon Peninsula in particular. What's on your mind this morning, Mayor? Uh, I just read an article on your uh, news site about shared services for towns, and I think something that the government should certainly look into is uh, some supplying some funding so that towns can avail of their own engineer. Uh, for example, if the, if the government came out and said, okay, we're going to help subsidize the salary of an engineer for, uh, for example, Gambo to Lumsden or, or Hare Bay to New West Valley, um, I think it would certainly benefit the towns when it comes to applying on projects to, 
process now is that whatever whatever project comes in, you have to go out and get a random owner advisor, and you get an engineering firm that you're not, you know, you, you don't have a reputation with, you don't have a rapport with. Uh, consultant fees come out on a $1.6 million project. They could be upwards of over $100,000. That is government money, is taxpayers' money. In my opinion, it's better to take that 100000 or, you know, that, that you're spending on one project, and you can pay an engineer for a year's salary almost to provide that service to regions. And, of course, uh, an engineer for a small town of New West Valley is not viable to have him on the payroll for the amount of projects you're dealing with. However, if he's going to be dealing with a group of towns and you haven't got the group with consulting fees for every project, it's going to pay for itself time and time again. Yeah, can, can you give us an example? Would it be with things like consultants or engineers that come up with uh, town policy or roadmaps regarding climate change, or would it be about wastewater or potable water? Or give us an example of where that might be appropriate or applicable. Well, for example, we have uh, multiple projects on the go now. Uh, a new roof for the stadium. I think the consultant fees came out with that project uh, over $100,000. We worked on another project for some water lines going into the ground, and the consultant fees, again, were upwards of six figures. Uh, We're working on some uh, water storage treatment right now. Uh, That is a massive project for this town. And again, every time that you go out and get an RFP and you get some drawings and you get whatever, then you're dealing with consultant fees whereas if you had your own engineer on file uh with the town who was familiar with all the aspects of the town i'm sure that it would save the government money time and time and time again yeah it it sounds like it you know i i think that's where the whole starting point of how we talk about these issues is important words have meaning words will immediately seep into someone's mind and say no don't like it or yes i'm willing to talk about it or yes let's go because regionalization was obviously a non-starter with a lot of folks relocation non-starter with a lot of folks but shared services just sounds like something that that level of collaboration or cooperation could absolutely be beneficial to every resident of every community that gets on board uh, I certainly agree with you, Patty. Uh, there's no way that I think actually trying to amalgamate or to regionalize or to combine uh, towns with such a great geographical distance would have worked. But having shared services that everybody could avail of is certainly a more viable way to go, and I think could certainly benefit small towns going forward. Yeah, the bit about, you know, maybe 25 uh, different regional regional governments or 25 counties, they would all have some sort of differences. There would obviously be distinct overlaps, but it just probably was too complicated to actually achieve it in short order. So maybe, just maybe, we go back to the drawing board, we start with this concept, and we make some forward progress because legitimately, we've made very little. Whether it be with economic cooperation here on the Avalon with Paradise uh, and uh, CBS and St. John's or what you've done out of New West Valley or other examples out in Conception Harbor and otherwise but you know maybe Lab City Wabush a couple of things like recreation and the Moika Adams Center small steps probably gets us a little bit closer to the finish line versus figuring that we can just do it all in one fell swoop because obviously it's just too complicated and too many people don't want it certainly right patty so as as uh, as, as the town of new west valley we're certainly going to be bringing this issue forward to uh, the new minister and to the new uh, minister of transportation and infrastructure because those are two areas where this would fall into we're giving them some time to get it acclimated to their position and then we're going to start uh, lobbying for some of this stuff patty i also want to quickly speak about the uh, 2910 cadet corps that we have in our town okay 
they have a 52-year history in this town. It's it's always been a, a stable of our area. And recently, uh, there was a lady came out, had a meeting with the town, had a meeting with their sponsor, the, the Lions Club in the area. And due to low numbers, uh, they want to twin our Connect Corps with uh, an Army, our Army Connect Corps with the Air Connect Corps in uh, CWT, which is about a half hour away. And uh, I think Gamble may be included. Uh, I certainly, I certainly can see where, you know, they say there's low numbers and there's not a viable core anymore. At times, our core used to be 75 to 100 members. Now we're down to 10. It was six last year. But like, you know, uh, there was an email sent off. Uh, since COVID, a lot of areas have been struggling to get their members back. Minor hockey, dance groups. It's it's just been slow starting up, and for us to lose something that's been our town for 52 years. Um, we have cadets right now that are driving about 45 minutes to come up here to our core, add another half hour to their drive. I don't think that they're going to be too excited to twin with another town. Um, it's been uh, a very positive thing for the people that have used it. They've traveled all over the world with this cadet core, and, and I really hope that, you know, we, there was an email sent off saying, you know, hold off for a year, and, and if we can get... It seems like 15 is the magic number. If you have 15 in your cohort and it's considered viable, give us another year and see if we can come up with those extra extra cadets. Those types of rebounds, recovery, it's going to be, you know, quick in some areas, but not so much in others. And we can't just uh, figure that, oh, well, COVID had this impact. Consequently, there's no need for this core anymore. That's probably not true or accurate. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Tiller. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We'll be in touch. Look forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, before we get to the break, let's see here. Coming up is the uh, Avalon Motorcycle Ride for Dad. Prostate cancer, of course, the most commonly diagnosed cancer in Canadian males, and the honorary chair is Brian O'Connell. And, of course, Mr. O'Connell, friend and colleague here at VOCM, did indeed go through his bout with prostate cancer, and as the honorary chair, he's going to tell, tell us what to expect with this upcoming ride. Good morning, OC. You're on the air. Hey, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, pardon me, uh, good morning, Brian. OC, just a uh, <laughs> local nickname. Okay, Brian, yeah, you've been doing actually, this for a while. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm the honorary ride captain. And, uh, oh, I was, uh, Facebook's a, a great thing because it reminded me it's been uh, nine years. So this is my ninth year as the uh, honorary ride captain with the Avalon Chapters Ride for Dad. And uh, you're right, prostate cancer is uh, uh, the cancer that affects uh, – Men the most outside of uh, of uh, skin cancer, but one in eight Canadian men will be diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. And uh, you know, uh, in in my own uh, case, uh, I was uh, going to Calgary in 2013, and before I went, I just dropped in to see my doctor for something. And he, as he often did, because my dad had prostate cancer, did a a blood test. And uh, when I got back in early. Um, in early uh, January, February, he called me and said, you, you have to go see a urologist. And it was at that time I found out that uh, I had prostate cancer and uh, it was uh, advancing rather quickly. And uh, the thing is, I didn't have any symptoms that I was aware of. There was nothing that uh, tipped me off to the fact that I had prostate cancer. And by the time I, I had my biopsy, uh, my prostate was 50% cancerous. And again, I didn't know. So if it hadn't been for that blood test getting checked, um, it would have been a different story. So uh, nine years, yeah, at, uh, this Saturday is, is the ride for Dad and uh, the Avalon chapter, and I always watch the weather coming up to ride day because uh, uh, if it's uh, fairly good weather, we get a lot of riders out, and we've had riders in the hundreds and hundreds. So uh, uh, this Saturday uh, we're looking at... Uh, 
uh, cloudy skies and a high of 16. Maybe a shower, but I don't know if that's going to happen. So uh, if you're uh, interested in participating, please do. You can register on-site on Ride Day. You can register online. And uh, if uh, you are a person who's looking for information or uh, support for uh, prostate cancer, you can contact uh, nlprostatecancersupport.org, and you'll find uh, a listing of uh, support groups there. But the big message here is early detection, Patty, and that's what I've been talking about for these past nine years and how important that is. Well, you know, especially if you have a family history, that's one thing. But getting tested frequently because, like most cancers, not all, but for most, early detection leads to much better prognosis for how treatment can work for you. So it is key. Not only family history, Brian, is there a recommended age at which you should indeed be getting regularly tested? You know, once you cross that 50-year mark, uh, you know, I I think probably a little before, but once you cross that 50-year mark, you know, you should be asking your doctor on a regular basis to get your PSA checked, and you should have that that exam um, done by your doctor in his office, uh, you know, whenever you see your doctor, at least once a year for sure. As I said, uh, you know, it it can sneak up on you, as it did on me, and again, I I can't say enough uh, about uh, not having any symptoms. I had no symptoms at all, and uh, he was lucky to find it. Uh, So uh, early detection, Patty, is the key. And, uh, you know, uh, we have uh, great oncologists in this province. Uh, We have uh, some good medicine here. The funds raised, by the way, for the Avalon Ride for Dad stay here in this province for research. And and just a quick note, you know, from when I was diagnosed in 2014 to where we are now, uh, there are a number of brand new drugs uh, for men who are dealing with prostate cancer. So uh, there's a lot of stuff happening around this and we are making progress but uh, the big message here is early detection and this is Father's Day weekend Mm -hmm. and I want to say that it doesn't just uh, affect men it has a huge impact on their families wives daughters sons sisters and brothers all touched by this one diagnosis so uh, do yourself a favor do your family a favor and get checked do you launch from Newfoundland power on Camelot Road again this year okay yeah so here's the uh, here's the route we're gonna leave uh, Newfoundland power head up Camelot Road and uh, we're gonna go down through Portugal Coast St. Phillips, uh, and then we're going to come back up and go through the um, um, Old Broadco Road over to the Sunshine Road Rotary Park, and we'll finish up at Newfoundland Power on Duffy Place. So we start at Newfoundland Power, 55 Camelot Road, and then we end at Newfoundland Power, 50 Duffy Place. And a big shout-out to the folks at Newfoundland Power who get behind this every year, as do a number of sponsors. We want to do a special shout-out, too, to uh, BMW Motorbrad, because uh, Motorbrad, because they have a, a wonderful thing going on this year. And you can find all of that information. Uh, you can go to the Avalon Ride for Dad Facebook page or rideforDad.ca and you'll get all the information there. Good to have you on. Good luck with the event. Have fun. Thanks so much, Patty. Uh, always great to talk to you. Cheers. My pleasure, Brian. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. It's Brian O'Connell. the honorary ride captain for the motorcycle road, r- ride for Dad. Let's take a break. When we come back, Glenn's got an update on some city uh, issues. Then we're talking pride. And remember, there's still some outstanding cases regarding the 2021 election and the veracity of still before the courts. We'll talk about that and whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line three. Appreciate the patience of everyone there. Hopefully you can hang with us uh, through the news, but let's get an update on three from Glenn. Glenn, you're on the air. Hey, buddy, how are you this morning? Okay, you? Uh, not bad, not bad. I talked to you yesterday about the water and sewer, and sewer situation that we had burned place down on uh, Pierce Avenue. And you have an update? I have an update, yeah. I got a hold, we got a hold of a, a contractor to come in and out, and they said, uh, basically, uh, I got to pay for the, I don't, uh, the brother got to pay for the permit to get it done and everything else, and it's uh, $25,000 to put in about three or four lengths of pipe. Yeah, so I my... That, go ahead. <laughs> I think that's a little bit excessive. 
But of course, that that's a quote coming from a private contractor, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the question that I had is that I was a little surprised that anyone was allowed to even fiddle around with public infrastructure like sewer piping or water piping, whether it be on your lawn or under the sidewalk or anything else. I didn't even know that was something that was possible because I could have, I could be a contractor, right? And yeah. so I have a problem, and I can just uh, usurp the city and not even bother with them, just dig it up myself, have my employees repair, repair and replace, probably eat the bill inside my corporate office, and no one's the wiser. But I'm surprised that's even allowed, to be honest. Yeah, I am totally honest with you. It's like, this is a city problem, as far as I'm concerned anyway, but like apparently, according to the city ordinance or whatever, from your house out to the sidewalk is your responsibility. It is. No matter what. Yeah. Okay, so. That's in, in part. It is your responsibility, but it's their work to be done or the need for a permit to be granted so that you get someone else to do it. How much is the permit? Uh, I'm not exactly sure about it. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, I don't know. I, the, the brother was dealing with it, right, like I said, and he's, like, he's working in that. So I was like, I'm like, I'm, if, you know, any happens, like, I try to get my hand with it and stuff, you know, like you would, right? But it's like, for the city to go around and, like, 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 like the brother said, like almost three years ago, like he's willing to pay the city to do it. You know, they'll come in and do it and stuff. But like, I think this like for twenty five thousand dollars to put three or like I said, three or four lengths of pipe in it, like that's a little bit. Well, I would imagine my, my body, my body. It's a big number. Like everything else in this world, if I'm dealing with a contractor for whatever, the electrical or plumbing or put a deck on or siding or roofing or whatever, I get a few quotes, make sure I get myself my, the yeah. best deal possible. So is he going to do that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he's going to shop around. He's going to shop around, obviously. But like, have to. But like, 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 I don't know, like, I think the city should like help, like pay for half or something anyway, or, you know, or like, or come in and do it, and he's willing to pay the city to do it. Like, you know, but it's like there's no talking to the head guy up at uh, up at the city depot about it. First, first like I said, you know, like this, like I mentioned yesterday, and I don't want to rehash anything, but first he said it was a rental unit, which is, which is not, and now they're saying that he's not living there. So I was like, make up your mind. Like, uh, yeah, I understand, and that's a, that's a big number, and I do indeed have a couple of notes around to try to figure out a little bit more on this front, but Glenn, I appreciate the update. Off to the news I go. All right, thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Suzanne is there to talk about pride, and Wayne wants to talk about the Allison Coffin court case against the government regarding the fact she lost her seat back in the 2021 election. I think Jim Lester also put a court challenge forward. Anyway, we'll speak with Wayne and Suzanne right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Suzanne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for taking my call. No problem. Um, I'd like to respond to the caller, Marie, on Monday, who was indeed very angry about Pride and the month that Pride is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm extremely nervous, so I'm going to try to get my points out quickly and not take up too much of your time. Don't worry. Um, this has really, really shook me to the core. Um, not, You know, I'm 56, so it's not that I'm not used to hearing about, uh, you know, bigotry and hatred. But this call really put me over the edge because I'm a little fed up and really, really tired of hearing people use God to spread hatred. I'm a woman of faith. I've always been. I believe very much in God and in Jesus. Um, in my home, 
faith is very important, gratitude. But I think Marie has learned about a different Jesus than what I believe in. The Jesus I know factually and historically, and I hope Marie is listening because I think Marie needs some education perhaps. The Jesus that I grew up believing in is of a God of love, of tolerance, of inclusiveness, of non-judgments. The Jesus I believe in walked the earth, and first and foremost, Marie, Jesus was not a white Christian. Jesus was a dark-skinned Jew. He was king of the Jews. Jesus also hung out with the lost souls, the hopeless. He hung out with the dreads of society, and his first message to everybody was, do not judge. It is not our place on this earth to judge or condemn anybody. So I have a real problem with these Christians, if you will, who use God on a regular basis to spread hate. Because in my home, God is love. God is inclusiveness. God is everything good. And so I see these groups, you know, that Dana Metcalf has going. And Dana, I hope you're listening. Nothing personal, by the way. Um, But I really have a problem um, thinking today and the last while that, my God, we are gone back to the 1950s. And so they've been bragging about their 141-plus thousand followers. And so yesterday, my granddaughter had Pride March at her school. And so, um, and yes, I have a daughter. And yes, I'm a gay woman. And uh, my daughter's straight, by the way. You don't catch it. You don't spread it to your children. The most nonsensical, uneducated things, I, I, I actually stop and think sometimes, do these people actually listen to themselves? My daughter and granddaughter are the most loving, kind, wonderful, well-adjusted people you will ever meet because they grew up with love. They grew up to include everybody, and they grew up with faith. But again, obviously we learned about a different Jesus and a different God than these Christians. Well, it also depends on who you've learned from because, you know, there's some people who take a literal uh, translation of the Bible and uh, different churches take different stances on issues regarding sexual orientation or ideology. Different families take different uh, stances on those matters as well. So, you know, it's never been a one-size-fits-all. This is the problem when I hear people like Marie and these groups that are saying, you know, protect our children, but spread hate to our children. It's such a contradiction when you're spreading, you know, these people are putting so much energy into, and and the first thing they say, let's protect our children. Okay, protect our children means spreading hate. Um, Not only that, but if you'd really, really like to educate yourselves, the Bible's been interpreted by man for over 2,000 years. The Bible speaks of selling our sisters as slaves. We wouldn't do that nowadays. The Bible also speaks about gluttony. Well, I'm a chubby bunny. Does that mean I'm going to burn in hell because I eat too much? I mean, come on, people. Well, again, that's an interpretation issue. It's things like working on the Sabbath. and an interpretation issue. The Bible is a book to use as a guide. But when you think, like for me, I have atheist friends, I have agnostic friends, I have Jewish friends, I have Muslim friends. 
you know, I think the real, what we've lost in thinking about being spiritual or faithful, what we've lost is that, I mean, I don't know if what I believe is right, and I, I've taught my, my girls that. We, we respect what we believe, but we also respect that we don't know if what we believe is right. But these radicals and evangelicals think, you know, the first thing I thought when I saw the post, we've reached over 141K. Well, good for you. You've got over 141,000 people that you've, you're spreading hate to. Why don't you put your energy, if you really want to protect our children, why don't you take some time to go to these schools and see if there's a child there that maybe needs some support? Why don't you see if there's a child that's being bullied and protect them? Those numbers could really do some damage in stopping bullying. Why don't you think about those things, what they're doing, and numerous people that I've spoken to think the same thing. When we look at your 141,000 followers, you've managed to get 141,000 people full of hate. So when I leave the earth, when I die, I want people to remember that I tried my best to make something good in your day, that I touched you in a way that you're going to feel loved and cared about. So good for you, Dana. Good for you, Marie, that when you die, people will remember you started uh, a, a movement no different than the Nazis did. See, no, I think I'm just going to say that that's too much. As much as other people go too far and, you know, try to evoke certain images or uh, historical... Well, spreading hate is a really bad thing, and these groups are doing nothing but spreading hate. We're not talking about anyone being Nazis. I do indeed have plenty of questions about... Fair enough, I take that back. That's okay. I don't know you. I don't know Marie. I don't know Dana. I don't know many of these people. I'm just so tired of people using, um, you know, faith as a way to spread hate. Because if you really are somebody that believes in God, there's nothing hateful about it. And, 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 you know, the bringing up the constant constant sexual deviance. I mean, uh, they're the people with the dirty minds. You know, you go and sit down and listen to a drag queen reading a story. They're reading a story. So I would suggest that these people are the ones with the dirty minds. Well, you know, I have questions like, what specifically happened at St. Matthew's School that has brought on such uh, brought on such outrage? You know, we all know, regardless of your stance on these issues, if there's something sexually provocative or scantily clad or exposing yourself or anything like that, that's a problem, that's a pervert, that's a potential crime. We are all, all on the same side here. But if right. it's someone simply uh, dressed in a colorful dress, man or woman, reads a book or sings a song, I'm not sure why they think that that's going to harm that child and the whole concept of uh, you know look they're coming after me full force I I, I mean it's unbelievable and so you're not full of hate well I don't know and I can't speak for them but you know the bit about groomers and pedophiles it has real-life implications there's a disturbing there's a story that came out of BC this week where a man a grandfather of a young girl was competing in a track and field event there was a nine-year-old getting ready to a nine-year-old girl getting ready to throw the shot put to when the man said that is a boy, or at least trans. I need proof that that person was born a girl. And then the wife of the man allegedly 
screaming things like groomer and pedophile and mutilator, all these things. That's what happens inside, inside, inside society. A nine-year-old girl taken to task by a belligerent man who was questioning her sexual, uh, her sexual identity. It was a little girl who happened to have a pixie boy haircut or whatever they right. call that so, hairdo. So how did that little girl feel? She was de- devastated, I would assume. Right. But that's so my point. Is people that people understand that we're adults. We got big shoulders. We can take their hurls and their insults. But these little children, they are damaging and, you know, filling them full of fear and filling them full of hate. And, and they're dividing. I mean, look, yesterday I asked my granddaughter, I picked her up from school. I said, how was your day? She said, we had the best parade. I said, and what did you learn from that parade? She said, we learned about Harvey Milks. And I said, what did you learn? She said, we learned why the Pride Parade started. And I said, and why do you think it started? She said, so that kids growing up don't have to die, be beat up, or be afraid anymore, and they can feel loved. That's what St. Matthew's School is teaching. Yeah, I didn't see anything that would cause me concern if my child was in attendance there. And uh, this call is certainly going to bring upon the wrath uh, of others uh, with me, and so be it. I've got the big shoulders. I, that's just part of the gig at this It'll moment. It'll probably time, bring on the wrath of me, too, because a lot of people know me. But at this point, and I call in very rarely. I listen to you, but I call in very rarely. But enough is enough. If you really want to uh, look at a Christian Look at young Mike Williams up in Toronto. I don't know this guy. I've never met him, but I follow him. He's the definition of a young, good Christian guy. This guy spent almost entire adulthood in jail, and he spends his weekends out feeding the homeless. That's what Jesus did. So, Marie, if you'd like to talk about God and Christianity, and also, Marie, I'm going to pray for your anger problems. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, enough is enough. It's time for people to uh, realize that the things they're saying are cuckoo bananas. They're out to lunch. I mean, you know, to even think about to think about some of the things these people say, it's nonsensical. It's absolutely nonsensical. So it's time we, the, the other side of the coin has happened where we have to take a stand because I'm tired of all the hatred. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, just a quick comment, and it's not directed at Suzanne or any other individual. You know, realistically speaking, the, when the pendulum was unable to swing even one iota for decades and for centuries, now that it has moved, albeit so slightly, regarding a minuscule percentage of the population, with that change comes the vitriol and resistance to change. Nobody on either side of these coins is defending indefensible. Nobody is defending grooming a child to take sexual advantage of them. No one defends pedophiles. Nobody is talking about um, something that has not been present in society for centuries, because it has. The problem is, is that when there's one move away from what was the historical norm, and the heterosexual, uh, heterosexuality was the only thing ever on display, the only sexual orientation ever supported. The, I mean, if Edith kisses Archie Bunker, nobody reacted. If Archie had to kiss Anthony, then that would have been such a huge, massive societal tidal wave. Now that things have changed, even just 
in a minuscule fashion, it has brought upon some pretty intense emotional backlash. A lot of it is absolutely focused on a segment of society that is unable to legitimately defend themselves based on strength in numbers. Now, they do have support from other pockets of the, of, of the society and the community, which is always going to be part and parcel with these emotional and sometimes grossly exaggerated concerns. Again, change is hard. And when change comes in something like sexuality, which for the longest time was taboo anyway, Regardless if we were talking about man and woman, man and man, woman and woman, and or drag, and or trans, the fact is it's long been part of the realistic landscape of the community, but now, for some reason, it has really changed. The conversation has changed, and it's become super aggressive and super judgmental and demonizing individuals. If someone is a criminal and a danger to children, regardless of who you are, what you support, we all think that that person should be brought to justice and that child should be protected at all costs. But the insinuation that everybody in the pride movement is that person is ludicrous. It's harmful, it's damaging, it's not based in any form of reality. And so we've just got to try to figure out a way for the conversations to happen without being hyperbolic and vilifying individuals because that's getting us absolutely nowhere because things have changed just so in such small increments but what was the norm for centuries is changing in societal commentary and for many it's unacceptable can we figure out a way to broach the divide i'm not even sure we can the genie is somewhat out of the bottle we might be able to hold on to the small toe of that genie to keep her him or her from fully escaping but let's take a break wayne appreciate your patience we're going to talk about a couple of court cases in front of the courts regarding election results in 2021 don't go away welcome back to the program let us go to line number one good morning wayne you're on the air good morning patty thanks for taking my call happy to do it uh, I was just—I had some questions about uh, what's happening with the court case for Alison Coffin. I think Jim Lester's got one too. That's right. Uh, is it taking a long time, or? Yes, the short answer to that is absolutely. It's taken a long time. Is, is, is there a reason for that? I don't necessarily know. Generally speaking, getting things through the courts takes a long time, no matter what we're talking about. But sure, in sure. this instance, we may indeed be into another election cycle before the court cases regarding 2021 are heard, because if I remember correctly, the trial is scheduled for mid-February next year. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time. Uh, the other thing, too, is that the last election seemed to have a little bit of more abnormalities to it. I know COVID was part of the factor. Uh, but were the votes counted long before the, the closing of the polls? The votes weren't counted any different. You know, so regardless if it's a mail-in ballot or you voted in person on Election Day, all yeah. candidates, all parties have an opportunity for a scrutineer to be there when the votes are counted. So yeah. I can't remember the particulars of whether or not a mail-in ballot, 1 or 1,000 or 10,000, were counted before the official count took place. If I could remember correctly, I'd be happy to say it out loud. But the problems here were many. Coming up yep. to Election Day, Elections NL, and of course it cost Bruce Jockey's job, uh, yep. they didn't have poll workers who were willing to ban or to be the staff at all of the official polling stations. Consequently, we went yep. through this ordeal of mail-in ballots. Yes. Then the issue was whether or not we had... Uh, Appropriate time to get a ballot and to get it returned. People felt like they were left out of the, the exercise of uh, 
exercising their civil right, their civic right to have their vote counted and heard. So that yeah. was this. It's that in a nutshell. The whole mail-in ballot issue was poisoned anyway back in 2020. Mail-in ballots have worked for jurisdictions municipally, provincially, and federally for years. Elections Canada has a pretty tight system in navigating elections and protecting the integrity, but mail-in ballots felt like a foreign beast to so many that as soon as that was the go-to, people said, well, I don't trust it. Based on what? Not much, I don't think. Yeah, so that was my question. I mean, it just seemed to me that... Uh after the polls closed, they announced at that point then who was uh, who was elected, and usually it does it's not happening that quick. They have to count, and if someone knew that ahead of time, maybe there there was some phone extra phoning going on that wouldn't have happened in in a, an actual election because you wouldn't have time to phone everybody to get more votes in. Uh, it just seemed to be a bit odd to me. I don't think there's ever been any evidence presented that leads me to believe that people knew vote count and consequently there was more pressure put on their potential supporters. They all have call lists. Some parties sure. do a better job than others with knowing who their supporters yeah. are and helping them get to the ba- get to the uh, voting stations and or encouraging them to fill in that mail-in ballot. I don't think either party stopped or rested on their laurels given the fact just look how close the vote was. So it yeah, came down sure. to the nitty-gritty. Just look at Jordan Brown's riding up in Lab yeah. West. So I don't uh, no one has presented anything in public form that suggests yeah. that any of that happened. Maybe we'll find out more in the court case, and I'm yeah, sure there's things yet to be gleaned from what went on in 21, but I don't yeah. think you know, anything untoward necessarily happened. People just thought that the mail-in ballots were the boogeyman. Why? Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, because some of the nonsense that happens south of the border just seeps into our psyche and poisons <laughs> our mind. For sure. Anyway, thanks for taking my call, Patty. I just had those questions, and uh, hopefully I'll talk to you again. I appreciate your time and your patience. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Like, for instance, there's some thought that given some of the most recent announcements and money spends and all the rest, that we might be looking at a fall election this year, provincially. I don't know when it might or might not be coming. But the case for Ms. Coffin in particular, that trial is set over for sometime in the middle of February of next year. So talk about a little bit behind the time frame required. All right, let's go. Coming up is the 38th Annual Arts and L Awards in Stephenville and hosting one of my faves and one of the province's favorite daughters, Amy House. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I'm just uh, uh, like listening to your show, and I, it never ceases to amaze me, the knowledge that you possess, my son. I'm telling you, you know everything, do you? Nope, not at all. Nowhere close. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about a really large weekend that's coming up in Stephenville on June 23rd to the 25th. We have three shows out there that weekend celebrating and highlighting our fabulous Newfoundland and Labrador artists, as well as some artists coming in from the States to share their talent. So uh, if I may, the, the Friday night, June 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Arts and Culture Centre in Stephenville, is the 38th annual Newfoundland and Labrador Arts Awards show. Uh, tickets are 10 bucks, so come on. Everybody get over to Stephenville and get your tickets. It's going to be a great show. I'll tell you a little bit about that, too. Then on Saturday and Sunday, the 24th and 25th, there's two performances taking place at the Stephenville International Airport. So these shows are a partnership between Tinder Media here in Newfoundland and PBS in the United States and South Carolina. 
So the first show uh, Saturday night is 7 p.m. at the at the airport. It's called Towns in Tune. And then on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., we have a brand-new multidisciplinary art show involving writers, visual arts, and singer-songwriters. And that show is called Artist 3. So uh, as you know, and most of your listeners know, Patty, that the Ernest Herman Air Force Base in Stephenville was built during World War II as a first line of defense, uh, uh, you know, for North America in case of an invasion. We called it the friendly invasion in Stephenville. So the weekend of June 23rd to the 25th, we're going to have our own little friendly invasion. Uh, This time it's going to be an invasion of artists. We got so much going on it's going to be a fantastic weekend it always is you know all of these arts get togethers generally speaking whether it be music and l awards or the arts artists arts and l awards you know you bring together those creative minds it just leads to some fun times and to recognize the work that whether it be persistence theater does or the emerging artists or some of the lifetime achievement awards you get the young learning from the uh, veterans of the industry so this just has a flair that can't be replicated in a lot of arenas it's amazing. Like these arts awards really mark an important achievement in an artist's uh, career. And as a matter of fact, there are only six awards, Patty, and there were 65 eligible nominations this year. So that'll tell you the caliber of the artists that we deal with here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, and you did mention a few of there's artist of the year, emerging artist, arts in education, arts achievement, patron of the arts, and the hall of honor. And the whole show will be rounded out with uh, a lot of West Coast performers. It's uh, the the producer of the show is from the West Coast, Tiana Butler. We got um, Sherman Downey is going to be performing. I love Sherman. Uh, Tammy Dutcher, she's a soloist from. Cole Brook, and uh, she does uh, covers, but she also has a lot of original songs she's written. Caden White, he's from St. George's. He's a beatboxer. Do you know what a beatboxer is, Patty? I do know what a beatboxer is. You do. I had asked, what is a beatboxer? Cool. So it is. It's it's, um, a musical style, usually in hip-hop, I guess. That's right. that the sounds and rhythms of the percussion are done by the artist just by his mouth and his voice. So Caden is a nationally renowned performer from St. George's who's a beatboxer. He's going to be performing. That's fantastic. We have Jennifer Dawson-Hobbs, and we have Dakota Russell, who's a drag performer. Um, his drag persona is called Misty, and Misty is going to be out in the lobby pre-show, uh, showing off some of her lip-syncing talents and whatever else she has to say. The Stephenville Festival is also going to be there. They, they're celebrating 45 years this year, Patty. That'll age me because I was in on the ground floor the first show, the first Stephenville Festival year. So that'll give you an idea how old I am. Anyway, they'll be performing, and uh, we have a comedy duo, Sammy and Gordy Siegel, who uh, comment on, um, you know, what's going on down below on Earth, I guess, and have some scathing remarks to give us about that. Uh, Anyway, it it promises to be a fantastic show. Another performer that's going to perform uh, that night uh, at the Arts Awards is Jing Shaw. And she was, um, 
She's also a finalist for the Emerging Artist category, but she won an ECMA award. She's a Gujong artist. You know the Chinese pluck instrument? Have you heard her, uh, Patty, at all? I am familiar with her, yes. Yeah, she's fantastic. So it'll be a real eclectic show that night for sure and uh, showing off some of her good talent. Then on Saturday and Sunday, those shows are uh, in in partnership with the town of Stephenville and uh, the city of uh, Lake City, South Carolina. We've already done a show in South Carolina in May, and this is the second part of that. So PBS will be coming up to film the show in Stephenville on Saturday and Sunday. So it's all very exciting. We have Newfoundland and Labrador artists in those shows, as well as artists who come up from South Carolina, and uh, and we fuse the music and bring in, we do a, a songwriter circle, and we have a couple of bands on Saturday night. There will be uh, culinary arts as well after the show on Saturday night. There will be a small plate served to the entire audience. And all the funds raised for Saturday night's show will go to the food bank in Stephenville. So we're working with them on that show as well. And the culinary, some of that features Jonathan Richler, our buddy with the Jewish Deli, who I just got a note from. Just a very quick yeah. one on Sherman. I I met Sherman Downey and Andrew James O'Brien the same day in Gander on a media panel at the Music and L Awards. And just right. look what they've achieved. The boys come up and said, do you think we could possibly come on out of the fog? We're like, of course you can go on out of the fog. And now look where they both landed. I mean, amazing stuff. Two excellent guys. So you can call the box office to get your ticket at $10. There's also going to be a free live stream, so you don't have to be there to take in the, uh, the, the proceedings. Uh, Amy, very quickly, anything else you want to say before I have to go? I just want to say how proud we all are of the arts. Uh, community in this province and and what they how they buoy up this province is uh, is just so wonderful and uh, we we have to appreciate and support the arts for sure. Always good to have you on, uh, Amy. Thanks for this and good luck. Break every leg in the house. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate your time. My Take pleasure. care. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Amy House, of course, a renowned artist here in the province, hosting the 38th Annual Arts and L Awards coming up next weekend in Stephenville. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about succession planning. Okay, don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the manager of policy and research at the Community Sector Council. That's Christine Snow. Good morning, Christine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? Uh, be great if we were a little sunnier and warmer. It would be, but I guess we've learned to live with these types of Junes where, you know, in this neck of the woods anyway. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, thanks for having me on here today. Um, what I really wanted to, to talk about uh, is really succession planning in the community sector okay. and a program that CSE launched last week to try and assist with that process. And this program is called the Organizational Continuance Transition Planning Pilot Project. I know a long name. Um, but it's a financial support program really targeting those organizations that are facing an immediate need of filling a senior position within their organization but lack the money to do so. It's short-term financial assistance. The program provides up to $30,000 to an organization to help with transition costs. 
This is generally overlap of salaries when you're bringing somebody new. Um, we are also providing access to a human resource support specialist to really help in the process, in the recruitment process, and to aid an organization in making a smooth transition to a new leader. Yeah, well, the most effective organizations or businesses, when you create an organizational chart, it should come hand in glove with succession planning. Yes. You know, just not only job descriptions, which is important because you ha have to understand the role of the person before you can talk about the succession plan. Yep. But when you create the org chart, if you don't have this, the succession plan in place, then you'll be chasing your tail forever and a day. That's absolutely true, and we've been doing some research over the years about um, the importance of succession planning, and that fact is is recognized in community as well. And in our survey that we did back earlier in the year, we found 72% of organizations identified issues related to succession planning as a serious concern for their organization. We know we have an aging demographic um, in the sector, and particularly in senior leadership. So it, it's becoming more and more of a critical issue in organizations. It's becoming more and more of a critical issue that's affecting the continued viability of an organization. It can be a complicated approach, and that's why I guess mm. some funding for independent consulting can help because let's just say I'm the CEO. Yep. And, you know, you're talking about what happens when and if I move on, and you try to fixate in on how do I replace this person with someone who maybe is new to the organization, when in fact successful succession planning also comes with my, the people working for us, working for the organization yep. under me, preparing them for the next step, not promising them a job, but helping them understand what my role is so that they might fill it. And yep. then it's, it's easier to backfill back. down the org chart than it is at the top. Absolutely. But sometimes in some of these organizations, they're very small and they don't have the luxury of having a second in command or somebody that they can kind of um, train and provide skills training so that when the senior leader leaves the organization, then they can just kind of uh, move into that role. So sometimes um, ideal way, but sometimes that's not always an option. So when you're providing funding, who do you think that money's best spent with? So HR firms or independent consultants, or is there someone who's a specialist in succession planning? How do they, how should they use that money? So the the 30000 goes directly to the organization to help with overlap of salary costs. So you, when you talked a little bit earlier about having a junior person in an organization that needs to shadow a senior leader, for example, it provides some, uh, some financial support so you can cross over two salaries in that position. Um, the HR side of it, what we have decided to do on that piece is we're going to hire a, an HR specialist with that area of expertise and make that individual available to the organizations that are participating in this particular program. Um, we're looking, we're in that recruitment process now. We're open to a comment from an HR specialist firm, all designed to make the, this expertise available to those organizations that are participating. Pretty important stuff because any sort of hiccup in transition could leave you on the outside looking in for funding or filling out applications for government grants or bursaries or subsidies or what have you because there's not a minute to rest when you're working in these types of sectors. Absolutely not. And, and one of the first things they'll tell you that the, the literature will tell you when you're doing a transition process is to make sure you're, you're in communication with your stakeholders, with your clients, with funding agencies, all of those who um, might have some concerns because you're losing uh, a senior leader within your organization and how does that 
impact on the future viability of an organization. Excellent point, especially when we're looking around that landscape and the difficulty with which people are having to come up with money. Yep. It's because some of the funding pots are going to be post-COVID drying up a little bit more. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've been involved in some of these organizations. It really is an absolute handful. So, you know, thinking outside the box. And some things have actually happened during the pandemic, which makes it maybe even a bit more easy to navigate. You know, some of the Zoom opportunities and free live streams and things just widens your reach. But you got to keep those close to you closer than ever. Absolutely. And you have to you have to put more focus on digital literacy. If one thing that the pandemic taught us is, A, that we can do, there's all kinds of new ways of doing business and delivering services, but there's also a need to ensure that everybody has the right digital literacy training to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. How do they go ahead and uh, access this application and hopefully the cash? The application, you can find it online on our website, and our website address is communitysector.nl.ca. The the deadline is June 30th. And I was going to ask, but maybe this is not necessarily fair, about how the succession planning went for uh, Penny Rowe. Well, the conversation that that when we, because this is a project that started in Penny's time before she retired, we're we're rolling this piece out. In actual fact, um, there was a transition plan developed for her departure several years ago. Oh, no doubt. Um, So it was was a well-planned process, um, and it went very smoothly. I think that was more tongue-in-cheek than anything I else. I know, so. I know, but, I, you know, we, we, you know, you have to follow what you speak. A hundred percent. It's good to have you on the show. Good luck with this program and everything else that the uh, uh, CSC is working on. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure, Christine. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Christine Snow, Manager of Policy and Research at the Community Sector Council. Will we get the early bird deadline conversation in here, David? All right. It's just over 13 hours left before you can be in on the grand prize luxury cabin for Easter Seals. It's their annual cabin lottery. I think it's uh, the deadline is today. Anyway, we'll find out from the CEO on line one, Mark Bradbury. Mark, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Great today. You. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Yes, today's a big day for the uh, everyone who wants to get in on that Easter Seals Luxury Cabin Lottery. The early bird deadline is today. And uh, if you get your ticket today, you'll be in on the 2023 Steel Honda CRV Touring All-Wheel Drive Hybrid. So it's a true uh, SUV, Patty, that has um, battery and an engine gas. So uh, you've got the uniqueness of being able to uh, avail of both. It's an amazing, uh, amazing SUV, fully loaded, leather, uh, rear camera. It even has a rear camera washer. I've never heard of that. And uh, so, yeah, so you get in on that today, and you'll be in on for the early bird at capitalottery.ca. And then, of course, you'll also be in for the big grand prize draw, which is a beautiful luxury cabin out at Pond Properties. That has everything you could want, uh, you know, open, modern kitchen design, vaulted ceilings, floor to ceiling windows, wraparound deck, a prime waterfront lot, so you're overlooking the ponds. It's all built by core contracting and uh, furnished by Cohen's. You come on up, if you win this, you uh, put a turn of a key and turn on the barbecue and uh, 
have some good times with your family and friends. It's absolutely a beautiful cabin. That much I can tell you. And there's like 145 prizes. So get in on the early bird chance to win that Honda CRV uh, Touring model, the hybrid that it is. The 50-50 last year was something like $725,000. The lottery sold out around the early bird deadline last year. So today is the day. If you want to get in on the action, do exactly that. Absolutely, Patty. Today is the day. And let's not forget what the proceeds go towards. Easter Skills, we offer over 20 life-changing programs and services for persons with children uh, with disabilities all across the province, children and young adults. And uh, we're also building the largest uh, accessible and inclusive park in, uh, in Atlantic Canada, really. We're done phase one and two, which was the playground and the uh, amphitheater. And now we're... Uh, going to do the final big phase, which is the uh, outdoor hardcourt uh, arena. So we're going to be able to take our programs outside. Weather today is starting to turn nice, so we can see it coming, and then we can take all our programs and enjoy the outdoors as well. Ah, good luck with it. That accessible park, the schematics for it in its final phases is absolutely brilliant stuff. Good luck with this, Mark. Keep up the good work. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Get your tickets today at cabinlottery.ca. There you go. You're a poet and you didn't know it. <laughs> All right, buddy. See you, Mark. Take care, Patty. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. That's Mark Bradbury, CEO at Easter Seals. Let's take a break. When we come back, Amir wants to talk about performance vehicles. All right. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Amir, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing well, sir. How about you? Uh, I'm good, Patty. I'm good. Uh, first of all, uh, man, I want to salute you. All- Uh-oh. <laughs> I think we've lost Amir. Was that? A, are you back there, Amir? Uh, yeah. Okay, Eddie, there you I go. Was, it got out there for yeah. a second. Go right ahead. Yeah, Betty. First of all, man, I want to salute you. This all this last week or month or this parade month and all that, man. The way you are handling, uh, superb. That uh, <laughs> that uh, that uh, I want to I want to say that maybe if God gonna send Jesus. Jesus is going to say, no, but I'm not going down back to earth. You are handling better than Jesus. That lady, that lady was like, I, I want to, uh, in that regard, I want to support in a way that few things are common. I'm Muslim. Like my religion is Islam. Uh, seems like that lady, her religion was uh, Christianity and she was talking about Jesus and love. And few things in religions are common. And that's absolutely the love and no judgment. And whoever wants to do what is nothing to do with religion. And religion cannot uh, pinpoint that, okay, because of your religion, you need to preach this or you uh, need to oppose something because of religion. No, it's not. uh, It's not. uh, So on that regard, I want to a little bit... uh, kind of support her on a religious grounds? Well, you know, it's interesting. Religion becomes a very difficult conversation for uh, every reason imaginable when we think about it. So, you know, not every Christian is a radical Christo-fascist. Not every Muslim is a jihadi, but yet that's how so many people think about these things, when in fact that just derails conversations because it's simply not true. You know, you know it when you hear it. If someone's gone too far, we all understand it. That line is really quite clear. It's hard to articulate where that is, but we know it when we hear it. We know it when we see it. So just a bit more 
reality checks and a bit more addressing the nuance of conversations is probably going to help us out here because not everybody's the same in whatever circle or whatever organization or religion or business or political party. It's just not true. But yet that's what we do. I think it's a bit intellectually lazy. We just say, well, everyone's the same. If you're a Muslim, everyone's the same. If you're a Catholic, everyone's the same. If you're a Jew, it's just not the way the world works. But anyway. Yeah, no, it's uh, spreading. spreading. You can, you can promote your... You can promote anything. Like I, if you remember, I promote, I promote performance vehicles. I promote, I promote more tracks. I promote more places for people who have a little bit performance vehicle. They go and they enjoy themselves safely. In so, I can, you can promote positively anything. Same goes for all this pride and train and whatever, whatever they can promote. One should not spread hate against anybody in any regard. That's that's what I want to, I want to say. And uh, especially the religions, the religion is the most, uh, what I the English word. It's the encouraging way of not to spreading hate. You can use every religion, and one thing which is common is love. So so that was the small thing. And uh, um, the second thing, Daddy, I came. I came from uh, Alberta, spending four weeks, and then I spent one week in Halifax. Uh, and the timing was like the people were uh, getting out of summer, uh, out of winter, and into spring phase, and they were they were uh, getting their toys and all the vehicles out. And man, man, I I, I personally I personally noticed that mm, in Alberta and Halifax, man. The people were a little bit opening up their vehicles and everybody was like appreciating and thumbs up and like a percentage of people appreciating a guy in a performance vehicle. I personally found that percentage was higher, appreciation percentage was higher in those provinces when I, when I compare it with my beautiful Newfoundland. Uh, I a little bit notice that uh, 90 out of 100 people, they, they, they want to kill me. By they, they don't, they don't like, they don't like when I, when I little bit open up or anybody open up their vehicle. And by by saying that, I want to clear this concept that sound is nothing to do with speed. I can I can make a sound at 40 kilometer or 50 kilometer per hour because sound is associated with RPM and gear in which you are driving. So uh, I want to spread little awareness and little bit. Uh, I felt that people people little bit they 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 don't like sometimes you in a in a little bit performance vehicle little bit opening up your vehicle in first or second gear absolutely staying within the speed limit sometimes sometimes i'm so slow that the people who who use the concept of go with flow of 70 to 75 kilometer per hour in a 50 zone they sometimes uh, uh, are so close to my rear bumper that they are giving me a silent message of man move move fast but on the other side uh, it's a, it's a very it's a very tricky matter but that's my personal observation
here. I get it. I mean, you're 100% you know what right. I, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say, you you know the frequency. You are the god of frequencies and uh, understanding people's brain, man. You are like a Jesus for me. I'm definitely not that. But the whole <laughs> issue with sound coming from your vehicle, it's all about a couple of things. It's gear, RPMs, and the type of exhaust that you have in place. You know, whether or not you beat the baffles out, what kind of manifold. There's all kinds of things lead to it. But you're right. I can be going the speed limit and sound like I'm ripping past you as if you're anchored. But it's all about speed. <laughs> it's not about sound. Now, Sometimes some vehicles can be quite obnoxious with how they sound and a bit too loud for everyone's own good. We have that annual conversation about, in particular, uh, motorcycles, but it's also with cars. I mean, some people accuse one of my boys for having a bit too loud a brig. And so, look, you're, you're right. It's all about speed and aggressive nature and uh, how close you're following behind another vehicle. It's not about just how loud it looks or sounds. Yeah, it's like, uh, but yeah, anyway, anyway, hopefully we had a more, we have, we have more awareness. We have Avondale tracks bring more events and more uh, um, that you can, uh, you can test your vehicle there because there are, there are, there are tracks in Alberta and I think uh, there are some places in uh, Nova Scotia also where you can take your vehicle and pay, pay a fees uh, according to the time or the lapse or something like that. But yeah, that was uh, that was my. It's been a while. I didn't talk to you, but uh, now the now the score with my uh, with my buddies uh, and the number of call I did. I think it's now six zero. Uh, you and know what, Amir? You took you, you stole my thunder because I was going to guess this was your sixth call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and man, if you if you sit with my buddies on a coffee table, they you you will a person watching. Behind a group of people in which you are sitting, they will say, "Paddy, don't have a tongue." <laughs> they they speak this they speak like like a world out. They are not gonna they are not gonna let you speak. But I don't know. I encourage them so much, but they don't call you. Well, they should tell them I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paddy. You are doing a great job, and it's not only I want to congratulate the team because it's a team and the people who are not listened and seen every day. You had a great team, and I want to. I'm gonna pray for them, and I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna thanks. I appreciate that, and you're 100% right on the team uh, issues. Uh, I'm here. Good to have you on the program. Tell your buddies the call for the love of you know what. <laughs> okay, ready. Have a good day, bye. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you. Well, All bye. right, I'm here. Six nothing calls versus these buddies. Love it. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're talking about blood donors. Talk away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, June 11th through the 17th is National Blood Donor Week. Join us on line number six to talk about it is Veronica Vardy. Good morning, Veronica. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How you doing? Oh, good. Go I'm, uh, I obviously am calling to talk about uh, Blood Donor Week in Canada. And as well, yesterday was International Blood Donor Day. And um, for my family, blood donors are really special people. Um, it amazes me that they go in and like literally allow someone to puncture their veins (laughs) for the benefit of somebody that they do not know. And in 2018, um, and I swear this story has a good ending, but in 2018, um, my two and a half year old daughter was diagnosed with blood cancer and she had like one one platelet at the time in her blood count. And in her first 
10 days of treatment for cancer. She required 11 blood product transfusions just to get healthy enough to be able to have chemo and the surgery to put in her port. And I cannot tell you how many times I have, how many times in the hospital that I looked at the blood going to her little body and thanked those blood donors in my mind, and how many times in the years since that I have not been grateful for what they did. Um, Today, she is a seven-year-old. She's in grade two. She's vibrant and healthy. And her health, in large part, is due to the blood donors in our province. And my wife is one of them. You know, we need 100,000 new blood and plasma donors every single year in Canada. I mean, what I think is really quite helpful is your story, because it's easy enough for Canadian Blood Services to put ads on, and we know the reason why they do it, because they do need the donors. They need uh, some 10,000 new donors every single month. There's always a plea for, you know, whether it be big weekends and there's a shortage of blood or plasma and they make that emergency call to the general public. But this is an ongoing issue. Those ads are helpful. You know, saying 100,000 new blood and plasma donors required is helpful. But it's the stories like yours. That puts a face to the issue. That just describes what it means in someone's actual life and the life Mm -hmm. of your daughter and the impact on your family. So this is what really will drive people to consider being a donor or to go back and donate again. Exactly. And as you said, you know, I think um, from talking with um, someone at Blood Services uh, last week, because since Amelia was diagnosed, um, every year we try to have a blood drive around the anniversary of her diagnosis, which was July 4th. And I was talking to Blood Services last week about it. And he said, like, this year in Newfoundland, we actually need 2,000 new donors. So it's uh, pretty important. And also coming into like the summer periods, I know a lot of people get busy with their, you know, vacations and work and juggling the kids' activities and all that kind of thing. So blood donation isn't necessarily top of the mind when, when there's not something critical on the go. But that means that it's harder for them to keep the blood supply because a lot of blood products, as you probably know, only last five to seven days. So they really need that continuous supply of donations coming in throughout the year. And I know you're not speaking on behalf of Canadian Blood Services, and you get all the information you want at blood.ca. But I, I, I just throw this out for a purpose of conversation. I know there's logistical issues with collecting blood, but how many donors don't live in close proximity to a place where they can donate blood? And consequently, they're left out of that supply chain. I just wonder if there's a way to rejig the way they think about and the opportunities for folks to donate, because... Some people might be willing to drive 300 kilometers to do so, but I bet you there's another 10 or a dozen in that community who wouldn't but would gladly donate if there was a mobile unit came to their town. I couldn't agree more, and I know that there are mobile collection units that go around. Unfortunately, I think you do have to keep an eye on Canadian Blood Services' website to kind of be aware of that. I don't think there's anything set up right now to kind of like have you on a wait list and notify you, which I think personally, would be a great addition to their services. Um, And also, um, as you mentioned, like logistically, personally, I am someone who is scared to death of needles. I have tried to donate blood. I have, you know, nearly fainted, which was very embarrassing (laughs) at the time. But, you know, folks like me who are not able to physically give blood for whatever reason, we can also donate to Canadian Blood Services. 
and that helps with the transportation of blood products and the testing to make sure that it's safe and all those kinds of things. So there's lots of ways we can all be involved. A hundred percent. Veronica, sure. Glad to hear about your daughter and doing well in grade two. I'm sure looking forward to the summer and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. And I appreciate yours as well. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Veronica Vardy talking National Blood Donor Week. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Hey, yes, good day, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How about you? I'm not doing too bad. I uh, just wanted to let you know I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Uh, I do listen to you from time to time, Patty, for sure. Uh, I'd like to listen more, but obviously a busy life and, and work and stuff like that. But today I just wanted to bring up, uh, I'm sure this has been discussed many times, but uh, the lack of doctors in the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now I'm struggling to find a doctor myself because my doctor that I had for the last couple of years, he took a leave of absence uh, for at least a year, uh, maybe longer. Uh, obviously, I don't know those reasons behind it, but there's just another doctor that's uh, no longer in the province, and I'm sure I'm one of thousands of people that are without a doctor struggling to try to find somebody to, you know, get the help that we need. Right? I just want to get your opinion on that. Well, look, I think there's a lot to it. One thing for starters is there should be a way for us to come up with a real accurate number about how many people who are looking for actively looking for a family doctor because the province will say that the number is around 55,000. The uh, NLMA, through their research, is more like 136,000. There's got to be a way to come up with a better idea. In addition to that, there's actually more doctors working in this province than ever before in our history. Yet, we have so many people looking for a family doctor, so many people waiting for a surgery, so many people waiting for diagnostic imaging, whatever the case may be. So I don't know where the answer lies. I do think that if we can staff them appropriately and bring in new staff to be part of the collaborative care teams, that's going to help. But that's not moving as quick as people like. They're talking about having some 35 of those peppered across the province before they're done. They have expanded it somewhat. That's where I got my doctor. I was on the wait list at Patient Connect NL, and I finally got into the Monday Pond Collaborative Care Clinic and actually had an appointment yesterday or a couple of days ago. So the search is real. I know they're aggressively trying to recruit doctors, but the problem with that is so is every other province in the country, right? We're yes. all pitted against each other, so it's a real doggy dog out there. Yeah, and there should be a different, uh, a better system. Like I myself, I called 811 trying to get a hold of somebody just to give me some, you know, nobody has the time to call every doctor's office because, number one, they're so busy they can't answer. So even if you call them six times, you might not even get through to see if they are taking new patients. And probably 98% of them are not. It's just a matter of luck if you ended up, you know, getting getting a slot that was there. But they don't even take a list because the list would be a mile long as well. Yeah. So I called 811. I got the number for Monday Pond. I actually got to get up tomorrow morning, and I'll try to get in the lineup. I was talking to the, the lady who answered the phone, and she said there was 30 people lined up at the door the, the other day, right? And you took in 54 people, and that's the collaborative clinic that I found out about. No, uh, actually, there's a, two clinics there. Just so people are, are aware, there's actually two clinics at that site. One is a collaborative care clinic that is by appointment only, but right around the side of the building is indeed the walk-in clinic. Okay, the walk-in, and that's where I got to go tomorrow morning because, like I said, I, I just need uh, I, I need to speak to somebody, and uh, I don't have a doctor. Like like I said, like thousands of people, but even eight one one couldn't couldn't really help me. They gave me a few phone numbers. Uh, for in the near area, but I'm just going to have to keep going like everybody else and um, and just keep calling different offices. I might have to go even further. Right now I'm in St. John's. I might have to go into other areas like Bay Bulls or maybe even further than that. 
just just to try to get a doctor, which is which is a sin because you know we got people that if if you call a doctor and and they'll say go to emergency, but emergency can't handle all all the people that are backed up either. No, and I mean, so many people are forced or feel like they're forced to go to the emergency with a non-emergency issue. Jason, exactly. as, as opposed to calling all these clinics, have you actually signed up to get a family doctor with what they call Patient Connect NL? I had that done months ago. Yeah, I, I was about 11 months, if I remember yeah. correctly. By the time I applied to when I actually got assigned a doctor, who I'm really quite happy with. She's terrific. Oh, I'm, I'm happy for you. And like I said, I know I'm not too long because my doctor just left last month. So I'm not... I'm not bad off yet, like some people that are probably years without a doctor, but I, I don't want to be years, put it that way, and I don't think anybody should be. I, have I no know idea. the government is trying. You hear these announcements, so, okay, they they, they, they pay in more money, which they are due, you know what I mean? And obviously the when you pay doctors more money, it's uh, more more revenue has to come in from taxes or, or whatever. <laughs> maybe, maybe the sugar tax can help pay for it. <laughs> yeah, not much money coming in on that, I don't think. And, you know, no, the issue with paying healthcare professionals more, I mean, we think about it, the two most expensive things in this country is a night in the hospital or a night in the penitentiary. So if we can keep you out of both, it's money well spent. So if I can get a family doctor to acknowledge that I'm starting to present a symptom and before I get seriously ill and need to be admitted to hospital or need a surgery or something, if we can address it through treatment, we're saving money. So if I paid that oh, doctor yeah. a little bit more, you know, if that keeps me out of hospital for two weeks, the pay raise has been covered by one patient and one patient alone. So that's how I try to think about that particular issue. I don't know what your ailment is, and I'm not going to ask, but do, have you considered, and do you think that virtual medical appointment could also be helpful? Uh, I think it would be, for sure, just because face-to-face, uh, -face, you know, uh, Zoom calls or whatever you want to do, uh, th then you can actually, uh, the doctor can put eyes on you, you can be... You know, they can see that you're sincere and, uh, you know, you can have a conversation. You know what I mean? I had to speak to a gentleman uh, from the, the, the one at Dominion. So he actually called me back and he said, I, I can't prescribe you anything. He said, I can't take you for blood work because you're not in my family plan. But he, he was kind enough to call me back just to uh, answer some of my questions. Right. Well, that was a doctor at that as at Monday Pond. Yeah, you know, or uh, Dominion. Sorry. What I would also do is, if you think virtual care could possibly do something for you in the short term, so there's lots of options. Virtual Care NL, and the website is simply virtualcarenl.ca. There's Medicuro, which is a virtual health clinic, and that's an easy one. Is Medicuro, Medicuro.ca. There's GetMaple.ca. So there's three quick options that you just log on to their website. Maybe just maybe, as you're waiting for Patient Connect NL to hook you up, that a virtual uh, appointment might be a nice stopgap measure. So I'd give those three a shot just to see if they might work for you. So virtual care NL? Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely, uh, and I wasn't aware of that one, so I appreciate that, Patty. No problem. Give it a shot. Let me know uh, how it goes. I will for sure. Also, I just wanted to add in there, another reason why I was calling today is uh, my friend Amir Sheik, who was just on there, uh, he was bragging that it was six to nothing, so I guess it's six to one. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. <laughs> uh, maybe some other time. I, one time I tried to call before, but uh, I was working, and you know, you were backed up with calls. I wanted to talk about uh, Bank of Canada rates and how they're handling the country there, but I won't talk about that today. Maybe some other time. <laughs> yeah, the rates went up 25 basis points, and by the sound of it, not only the Bank of Canada, but the Fed and the Bank of England, they're all looking at this might not be the end of the hikes, which is 
problematic to say the least and this was only after a very minor bounce upwards in april in, in, with inflation from 4.3 to 4.4 all of a sudden 25 yes. basis points no longer will mortgages start with a three they're going to be starting with fours oh fours and fives for sure yeah that's and, what it looks uh, like it. somebody i think that should be let go from their job is somebody at the bank of canada because i know when covid came they couldn't do nothing but the rates should have went up pre-covid because if you go back to the history of 2008 the rates were lower in 2008. So it, it never should have been as low as it was. And then COVID came in into play and then it messed everything up again. And now they're trying to fix it. But the Credit Bank of Canada should all get their layoff slips, in my opinion. Yeah, Tiff Macklin, who was the uh, governor, maybe if there had to be, you know, COVID, I don't think there was a playbook available to anyone, politician, public health official, no. Bank of Canada. But even if there was forecasted incremental minor, like uh, quarterly, 15 basis points or something, just to try to make sure that we were prepping for what looked like was going to be inflationary problems on the heels, yeah. given the amount of sovereign debt taken on and public spending and all these support yeah. programs. It's a big conversation, but we can have that next time if you're into it. Yes, for sure. Thanks I appreciate for, the time, th Dave. Thanks for the time. Good luck. Let me know how it goes with virtual care. Certainly will. Thanks again. Okay, man. You're welcome. All the best. All right, bye -bye. Bye. Uh, let's get to the break. When we come back, the topic entirely up to you. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? How are we doing out there? Okay, today might be a good day to get on if you're in town or in the St. John's metro region. 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, we've heard stories about how the NLC had a rash of robberies. Their staff were told, don't get involved because people were coming in, whether it be with needles or knives or other weapons. And consequently, it wasn't worth putting the staff at risk. And so what they had to do is they hired independent security. And apparently that's made a real difference. The security guards, I think, have gone away for the most part. I don't know what that's going to mean for the potential for another spike or increase in robberies. But we know what's also happening in the grocery stores. I don't think it's happened in this province quite yet, but there's a story out there in the national news about the fact that Loblaws and some of their stores, whether it be the superstores or whatnot, putting up a sign saying they're going to be checking your receipt against what you've got in your bag or in the cart. Now, a couple of interesting things there. Number one, you are not obliged by Canadian law to stop. They can't force you to stop unless they have seen you commit a crime. So if this ever comes to pass wherever you live, whether it be in Newfoundland or Labrador or other provinces, unless they saw you pinch something, steal something, commit a crime, you are not obliged by law to stop and have your receipt checked. When I didn't bring it up until now, but I guess someone else had read the same news story, and they said that, you know, well, what's the difference between Loblaws or... Uh, only these types of stores versus Costco? That's a fair question. Because at Costco, you do indeed, are, well, you're asked to present your receipt. I don't know how vigilant the person would be with looking at the receipt and matching up every single item with what's in your cart. But for the most part, people don't have their product in a bag in a cart. But can you imagine the logjam at a grocery store if every single person was stopped empty in their bag, make sure that everything on the receipt matches what everything that's in the bag. Absolute nightmare. But, of course, it's reflected in the need to, you know, try to protect themselves from theft. But here's an interesting one. They say that the receipt checks are in an effort to validate and maintain inventory accuracy. <laughs> Funny way to say we think you're stealing. So that's basically it. Generally speaking, all the receipt checks that have been put in place elsewhere is absolutely a theft deterrent. So if you see it and nobody saw you do anything wrong and you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have to stop. 
and go through that ordeal with that particular staffer who's asking for your receipt and to pop open your bag or bags. So I just thought that was a curious story. Uh, Dave, you want me to take this one before the news? Okay. Uh, I should have thrown it out there off the top this morning because I got huge traction yesterday, I think based on one call and a bunch of emails that flooded in, and that's regarding property assessments. Mine wasn't that outrageous, but I have seen some people send me screen grabs or pictures of their uh, property assessment comparing it to years past. We've seen increases of $43,000, $30,000, We have tried unsuccessfully to get someone from the municipal assessment agency to come on, walk us through the process. Because I don't think it's as scientific as maybe it could or should be given the financial impact of your property assessment when matched with a mill rate to come up with your eventual property task, uh, property tax, which is the most regressive form of taxation available. But that, that conversation is absolutely welcome here on the show because people say, look, I've lived in this house for 30 years. We haven't done an upgrade in five years of any form or fashion, and my property somehow assessed $30,000 more than it was this time last year. It's a big conversation. Jackie's there in the queue to talk about that. And let's check in on the Twitter box before we get to the break. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Da, da, da. Steve says, Costco's been checking receipts since day one, and nobody blinks an eye. Store X asks for a receipt, and people lose their mind. I don't think anyone's lost their mind. The point I was making was pretty fundamental, is that you don't have to stop. Unless they saw you commit a crime, you don't have to stop. And I think the efficiency and the flow at a Costco is vastly different than the numbers of people coming through a grocery store with all their stuff in a bag or bags versus the ability for someone to simply eyeball the cart, get a good idea whether or not you've had something under your shirt or down your drawers and just popped it in the cart before you presented your receipt. I don't think anyone's lost their mind. In fact, I haven't heard anyone other than one emailer even make vague reference to this news story. Let's take a break. Jackie, you're next to talk about property assessments. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Just before we get to Jackie, so as noted by several listeners, the issue with uh, bag check or check receipts at a grocery store where you're not a member, it's open to the general public, versus Costco, apparently you agree inside your membership agreement that they will indeed be able to check your receipt against the stuff in your bag or the stuff in your cart. Fair enough. I'm not a Costco member, so I've never seen the membership agreement. My wife is the Costco member in my home. But thanks for the info. Let's go to line number one. Jackie, you're on the air. Hi, I'm calling about our property tax assessment that we just got. Property. My house value went up $40,000, and we haven't done a thing. We're in Marystown, Crescent South. If I went to a real estate agent right now with that Kenning Bridge being closed, our house value would be way lower. Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand the whole process for a property assessment. If someone is telling me that I've lived in the same home for 30 years, haven't done a single thing to the home in a number of years, yet the value apparently is thirty or forty or $50,000 more than the year prior, it just doesn't really make much sense. Especially if you talk to a real estate agent. That's right. But I guess there's a difference between your property assessment and what the value is on the market because my house is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for. And that's true. Yeah. But what are the Canning Bridge being close? I don't understand that anybody's house here went up, not down. 
Yeah, I, I, look, and I mentioned off the, just before the news that we tried to get the Municipal Assessment Agency to come on and talk us through the process. They're not willing to do an on-air interview, did offer me some time off-air, which I may take them up on. But And, of course, it's different in the city of St. John's where they have their own assessment uh, uh, agency or assessment group. But, yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. But when the answer offered is, well, property assessments are up everywhere, the question would be simply, why? Because it's not reflected in the market, as you rightfully point out. So we're trying to get to the bottom of it, but we're having a bit of a hard time. Well, I appreciate you doing that, and I'm sure everybody in Crescent South does too. Uh, How long have you been in the home? Seven, eight years. In eight years. Yeah, and like I mentioned, my assessment, and maybe what happened in the city is just different than what's happened outside of the city because my assessment was up, but just marginally. Nothing earth-shattering. It didn't catch me off guard. I opened it. I looked at it. Okay, you know, wait see what council does with the mill rates, but nothing earth-shattering in my world, but that's not what I'm hearing elsewhere. You make a fair point regarding... Uh, the Canning Bridge in Marystown, obviously that poses a problem, and that fix is going to be a good while in the making. But even other communities, very similar stories coming from them. So, yeah, it's a it's something we're going to try to chase, but we're not having a whole lot of luck as of yet. It sounds like a tax scrap to me. Well, of course, the taxes will be settled and solved until the councils in Marystown and everywhere else, they apply the mill rate, because that's the two inputs before we come up with a property tax. But there's no doubt councils are going to have to be very cautious on this front because people are already strapped and there's no way the assessment is as accurate as the market so we'll see what they do with mill rates in your community and mine before i figure out how much i owe them in property tax which i already pay a pretty hefty property tax well i appreciate you making a huge effort on our, on all our behalf yeah we'll see what thank we can find out much. thank you for the call jackie thank you bye You're welcome bye-bye yeah, and if you want to chime in with yours, because Marystown might have a unique set of circumstances, given the obvious realities of how it's been kind of fractured uh, with the Canning Bridge being out of service. And now the province is going to replace it, but it just really feels like the timeline associated with that is also quite lengthy. You know, I know it's not the same as trying to talk about capacity and capability and timelines here versus other countries or other jurisdictions where they seem to be able to get some of these things done really efficiently and in a timely manner when, <laughs> you know, I know it's not as simple as flipping a switch and I'm not a road, a road engineer and I'm not a civil contractor, but sometimes it feels like some of these things take an awful long time. And now we were just speaking to Jackie, which pops back in my mind, the story which I don't think we should let go necessarily, and that's the story regarding Jack Whalen. It's really quite a story, a very troubling tale. So Jack Whalen was in Whitburn's boys' home from 73 to 77. He had grade 6 education when he went in. He had grade 6 education when he came out. But the most difficult part of this story is the fact that he spent over two years, 730 days, in solitary confinement. The story is mind-boggling. So beyond the grade 6 issue and beyond the amount of time he spent in solitary, which absolutely has psychological trauma associated with it, Because there is a statute of limitations regarding psychological or physical abuse, and there is not for sexual abuse, the province has basically drawn a line that says, this is worthy of compensation and this is not. Without question. I mean, sexual trauma and sexual abuse trauma must be very real. Obviously it is. But so with the psychological trauma of being trapped in that solitary confinement box for 730 days. So the government understands their role, accepts responsibility, But in a piece of legislation that the government writes, 
they hide behind it now saying there should be no compensation afforded to Mr. Whalen or others because it's not just about Jack Whalen. There's been other stories of children in particular in care and custody of the province who have suffered at the hands of wherever the caregiver was psychologically, uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, and yes, sexually, but some get compensated, some do not. Here's the issue regarding statute of limitations regarding cases of not that are not related to sexual abuse. Okay, uh, Jack Whalen would have had to brought forward this claim on his twenty until his twenty first birthday to come forward, uh, or on his twenty ninth birthday if the, the abuse had been discovered later in life. So I guess any of the PTSD that might have been associated with and formally diagnosed. But this just doesn't pass the smell test for me. You know, it's one thing for the province to say, we understand our role, we accept responsibility, but we're not going to involve you in the compensation, which they did last year, for somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 people, some $12.5 million, which is not a big load of money when you factor in what we paid to the lawyers. But that story regarding Jack Whalen, that is absolutely something that I don't think we should let go by the wayside. And I have been taking the task regarding something that I thought was part of the public conversation, and I don't think it's the be-all and end-all, and there's bigger fish to fry in this world, and it's regarding how the government handled the issue regarding Paul Bernardo and his transfer from uh, maximum to medium security. Look, of course, opposition parties, it's really simple stuff. You see things like this, and you try to make hay while the sun shines, but I think one thing they do have right here is there's been lots of examples of how Marco Mendocino, the Minister of Public Safety, has conducted his, uh, his role on a variety of files. So this one here, I don't think, once again, you know, I think it's worthy of bringing up because if his staff were advised and then they uh, notified him and the PMO was advised and briefed on this issue, maybe, just maybe, as opposed to us all finding out through simply the news media, if there was, Mendocino goes to the microphone or the Prime Minister or whoever and says, here's what's happening, here's why. Here's what we can and cannot do about it, as opposed to what will just immediately be the emotional backlash. How can a, a serial killer, a serial rapist, move from a maximum security facility? Even though the medium security facility might be appropriate, level of incarceration, and or potential treatment, and have specialists on site that deal with criminals like Bernardo, I don't know, but we might have been able to find out those things had the government, who does have a role to play here in informing Canadians, but now because they didn't do it, then they just set themselves up for this to be some sort of additional whip for their own tail, created by their own staffers, and of course taken full advantage of by opposition parties, in particular Mr. Poliev. So is it the biggest story in the country? No. But there's lots of mindfulness about the criminal justice system. So whether it be how we police the streets, the number of police and the number of programs for harm reduction and try to deal with root causes, then what goes on inside the courts and the shortage of federal judges. Now, look, there's just so many different tentacles to this, but this one just adds to the emotional pile, and it could have been dealt with in much more appropriate fashion. I did give an example where the government, you know, saying that we have no choice here, we have no say here, but they did indeed make a move with notorious child killer uh, Terry Lynn McClintock. She was moved off into a healing lodge from uh, a penitentiary. Now, the issue then, then Minister Ralph Goodale said that, you know, it wasn't succumbing to opposition party pressure or political pressure. The healing lodge well, did not have a secure barrier, a permanent barrier, to keep prisoners in, and consequently she did not belong in that type of facility. They moved her back to a prison in Edmonton. So, I guess, not necessarily directly analogous, but was an example of whether it be succumbing to political pressure 
or doing quote-unquote what is the right thing to do and the right level of incarceration and protection maximum minimum or uh, maximum medium or minimum security so again i understand and i agree it's not the biggest one to talk about but it falls into that very public conversation about soft on crime hard on crime and criminal justice system from the top down all right let's take our final break of the morning when we come back still another segment to speak with you on a topic of your choosing don't go away Welcome back to the show. Well, regarding property assessments, interesting note here from a listener whose name I will leave out of the conversation. He says he resides in the greater St. John's area, has owned the current property for the last eight years. Over the initial five years, my property assessment dropped by approximately $50,000. It has since risen back to the uh, 2015 level over the past three years, $26,000 alone for the most recent assessment. Assessments seem to be market-driven. There's obviously a relation, but certainly not directly. That's my own uh, aside commentary. Property assessments will still generally be lower than market values. They always are. Uh, well, not in Marystown, obviously, this year. Municipalities have a certain amount of revenue required for operating expenses, yes. When assessments are down, mill rates rise. When assessments are up, mill rates usually remain unchanged, as they will receive more revenue anyway, especially during election years. Right. And, it, you know, the property assessment... I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because it does because it's one of only two inputs into my eventual property tax calculation. And he goes on to say, I do not recall a public uproar when assessments were mostly down between 15 and 20. That fair observation, and you're probably absolutely right. Like most things, it's the shock to the system. You know, when you see an incremental decrease or increase in something like your property assessment, I don't even know how much attention everyone pays to it. I open mine all the time because, of course, it will be uh, a part of how they come up with my property tax. But the whole issue with how directly related it is to the market can only be one factor. I mean, my property assessment absolutely does not reflect what I can get from my house. It just does not. But he's interested when he says, you know, assessment's mostly down because when people see it down, they... Don't have that re sense that, well, that's going to see an automatic increase in my taxes because that's just not necessarily how things have worked over, this, over the years. But I think what is hitting most people sideways is it just doesn't feel like anything to do with my property assessment or the value of my home has increased by those huge numbers over the course of one year. So that's what happens here. It's sticker shock. If you haven't bought a car in five years and you go to look at a replacement, the exact same vehicle you're driving today, and it's 30% more expensive than it was in 2019, sticker shock. If I go to the grocery store and a stick of butter that I bought for $3 uh, three years ago is $6 today, sticker shock. Property assessment up uh, $45,000 year over year, even though I didn't lift a finger to do a bloody thing inside my own home, sticker shock. And so when you get a shock, then, of course, there's some sort of reaction. So I understand where people are coming from. Anyway, you want to take it on, you know what to do. All right, let's go to line number one and say to uh, say good morning to Nevea Devine's grandfather, John. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind, sir. How you doing? Not too bad. Just want to give you an update now. Hopefully, everything will be nice for Saturday now. Hope so. Uh, Nevea's annual lemonade stand. You know, we got some, uh, like this guy, Blippi, is coming. Apparently, it's very popular with all the kids. You know, uh, we got some goats coming there, food trucks, uh, bouncy castles, a couple of different bands are supposed to be playing for us. Uh, you know, it's going to be a really good, fun time, you know. I'm familiar with Blippi just because I've seen some of his educational videos, but the person himself is coming. Yep. Is he from yeah, Nova he... Scotia or something? I don't I don't know because I, I don't know much information because when my, da my daughter posted up, she said, who is this guy? He said, he's coming and... <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but I mean, apparently he's very, very popular with the kids, and 
he offered his time and stuff. We really appreciate that, you know? Absolutely. The one I saw, well, actually, I saw two because uh, a child in my sphere was looking at uh, blippy videos. One was about fire trucks. Another one was about animals or something. And they were really quite entertaining. So that'll be popular, I think. Yeah, that's for sure. We got some parents, some goats, and some people are bringing their, their, their show dogs there and stuff. And, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a fun-filled day, you know. And I want to make a, a special thank you to uh, DF Barnes Limited. They uh, donated $5,000 to the cause, which we really appreciate, you know. Uh, you know, that's that, all that helps. That's, that's one family that we can help out just in that donation alone, you know. I can say from experience, the crowd over at TF Burns, Mr. Fudge, Mr. Power, and others are top quality. Yes, sir, I guarantee. And like we really appreciate it. I mean, not trying to go out the subject, but Christmas time when I, I, uh, a lady in the goals does a, 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 a Christmas donation thing for some families in the goals, and they donate turkeys for me to give out and stuff, which helps out. Like you know, they they're really good to us. You know, I must say, I have to say that much. You know. Well, any, every little bit of help, uh, every bit, every dollar counts. But you know, corporate Newfoundland and Labrador has the ability to write those types of checks versus some. I'll be most welcome, but smaller donations that take a while to add up. That's right, John. Now we really appreciate it. I mean, every dollar comes in, but I mean, I had to make make a special thank you to, to DF Barnes. I had to say, you know. But uh, in saying that, I mean, I know people are going to go there, and some people are asking. How much does it cost? It doesn't cost anything. I mean, you know, you want to make a donation at the gate, you're more than welcome. Uh, you know, I know that I understand there's families out there that don't, would love to go. Maybe they don't have anything to give, which is okay. Come anyways. Come and see us. And, you know, if you want a glass of lemonade and you and you don't have that couple of dollars, listen, I'll come on, come see one, one of the volunteers. We're going to be glad to give you one. I mean, you know, we, you know, a, a lot of people donate more than, you know, the, the, that way so there's always extra and I mean and I don't want to see no one go around and say oh my god I'd love to have a cup of lemonade type of thing it's it's there you know if you want one it's no problem we, we don't have a problem with that at all you know well of course because people would want to be there for the experience and to show some type of support whether or not they have a big load of money to drop in the hat so that's probably a very good message John you, you know, and the thing is, like I say, you know, I mean, I know, um, I mean, we, we're doing, we're trying to help families, but you know, it's nice to see that the people are enjoying themselves and keeping her, her memory and her legacy alive. You know what I mean? And that that means a lot to us too. Just showing up and just saying hi, how are you, type of thing, and you know, and, and it's nice, you know, it's a good show, type of thing, and that all that all helps. That helps us get through the day and the years, I guess. You know. I imagine it does. You know, I'm not in your position, so I don't know how it feels. I mean, I've lost those older than me, you know, my dad and grandparents and the like and aunts and uncles. But I, I just can't imagine the way the world changes when you lose a, a, a child or a grandchild. It's not even something that I don't even know if you and I want to talk about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, you, uh, you know, you, uh, it, it's, it's. It, it, I mean, my parents passed away. If you, my mom died seven years ago. My dad died twenty-seven years ago, and it's hard when your parents. Everybody loses their parents. No matter who you lose, it's hard. But I'm going to tell you, nothing can touch losing a child. You know, or, or a grandchild. Nothing can touch it. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, like for me, watching my daughter go through this for for years is not easy either. You know, because you're there and. You know you're helpless. I mean, you're basically you're helpless. Nothing you can do. You can only just say that it's going to be okay. You know, deep down inside, that basically the day is going to come. It's not going to be okay. You know. 
Yeah, because it's easy enough to say it'll be okay and time heal all, heals yep. all wounds. Some wounds are much more difficult to yep. to close than others, so I don't know how anybody does it. So, I mean, did you and the family do anything in particular to get some grief counseling or support groups nope. or anything, or are you just trying to navigate it the best you can? Well, I think that uh, I think uh, when we had a fundraiser on the Gould a few years ago, and Stephanie O'Brien got lower. She was one of the first people that showed up, and Dana and Sherry and all the girls. And my God, I'm stuck for names now. Like, I think that they helped us get through a lot of us. You know, I mean, these people are always there for us. I mean, you know, Christmas time and birthdays, and no matter what, they're, I mean, these these people, you know, guys and gals, they've been with us from the, from, you know, from the first show that we had to uh, you know, help, help out Holly to get through all this, basically financially, you know what I mean? But they've been there for us, they're always there for us. I, I got to say it, I mean, I never knew Stephanie, but I knew her dad years ago when he was in the fire department, but I never knew Stephanie. And I got to say, it's people like her that, I mean, that gets us through all this, you know? She, uh, Stephanie's great. She's a friend of mine, and she's a lovely lady, and obviously she's done a lot for you and your family, yeah, wherever they Sherry come Windsor from. And, and all the girls. And, 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 Good for them. I think it's unstuck for names. I, was, I should have had something wrote down here, but, you know, they know who they are. You know, I mean, all the, and the committee members, they all, they do whatever they can. And, I mean, I mean, there's days they know, or, I mean, Holly or one of us was feeling down. They go, how you doing? You don't want to go and... You know, we, maybe we have a barbecue, we get together, we'll, they come up sometimes when we're camping type of thing over the years. I mean, you know, I mean, like, I remember it's been down to the Chase the Ace and the Ghouls. And, and a good many of them showed up, we went down and we camped down on the old horse race. Um, and we only live up the road, but we took our campers down and we went down the, the old horse race track and played the, the Chase the Ace from down there. Just, uh, you know, stayed there for, I think it was two nights or something we stayed there, you know. Yeah, those yeah. relationships make it easier. Nothing's easy, but I'm sure it's helping a lot. Uh, hopefully, it's a big success this weekend, John. Yeah, everybody's welcome. Please come and, and, and enjoy your day. And please, God, we're going to get some sun and you know have a, an antique classy car show to go with it. And everybody's welcome. And for folks who don't know, where exactly is it? Oh, at the Paradise Ice Complex yeah. from 12 to 5 on Saturday. And it's at the Paradise Ice Complex in Paradise, just in the road from Sobeys there. We're going to put some signs up Saturday morning. And, uh, you know, uh, no trouble to find us on Facebook. I mean, the Vegas Angels Foundation or the Vegas Lemonade Stand. We'll have all the directions there for people to find their way. And I'm, I'm sure you have no problem finding your way there, you know. 100%, John. Good to have you on the show. Good luck with it. Thank you so much, Patty, for your day. My pleasure. So My Goodbye. pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, uh, good show. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.